a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. We have a very special one for you guys today. We have Jim Pennison. Uh, he wrote an incredible book called The Rendlesham Enigma, and he wrote this amazing over 700-page comprehensive breakdown of the timeline of the Rendlesham Forest event uh, in Suffolk County there in England uh, back on December 26th of 1980 because he was there. He knows all about it. It's one of the best and most comprehensive um, reportings to date, and so to have him here is a bucket list conversation for me personally. So uh, this is a fascinating uh, breakdown, guys. If you've never heard of the Rendlesham case, then you're getting a special treat here with being able to hear it from Jim himself. But also we talk about several questions and bring up several things that have never been brought up in any other interview. So we actually get a really, really comprehensive conversation out of this. So uh, all the ways to find Jim and his wonderful book, The Rendlesham Enigma, will be linked down in the show notes. If you'd like to expand your experience with us here on the show, you can do so at expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is linked down in the show notes as well. That's kind of where everything is, rock fan merchandise. If you want to get yourself some dope threads, uh, go over there to do that. Uh, and also, it's got all the socials and stuff like that. So anyway, I'm just super excited about this conversation, guys. Uh, this was one for the books for sure. So uh, without any further ado, let's get right to this damn thing with Jim Penniston. All right, ladies and gentlemen, a very, very special episode today. We have the one and only Jim Penniston here from the Rendlesham Forest event that took place December 26th and 28th, but you were part of the 26th uh, of 1980 over there in England in the Rendlesham Forest, and I am so, so excited to speak with you, my friend. So uh, before we launch into your incredible story, if you don't mind for my audience, just give a little bit of background about yourself. Okay. <laughs> background about myself. Well, uh, my military background, would that be enough? Yeah, or? yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I entered the uh, Air Force in uh, 1973, uh, had a few assignments, you know, throughout the uh, United States. One of the special ones I had was uh, with the SAC Elite Guard at Omaha, Nebraska. It was the underground, you know, for the SAC command posts and bodyguards for the generals and presidents and heads of states and stuff like that. Uh, that was a very good assignment. That's where I got my top secret clearance, by the way, uh, was as a, only after nine months in the service, I got a top secret uh, clearance. That's what I held it all while I was in the service after that. Uh, then I had assignment from uh, Omaha. I went to uh, RAF Elkenberry uh, in England and uh, did a, a couple years there, liked it. Uh, so when I came back to the States, uh, I put back in for England and, uh, I got assignment in 1980 to, uh, RAF Woodbridge, Bentwaters. Uh, Bentwaters is actually the main operating base. I mean, Woodbridge is just a satellite. 
Uh, so I got my orders in the summer of 1980. And uh, of course, the incident happened um, in December of 1980. Uh, so I wasn't at the base too long when, you know, the situation happened. No, you weren't. You were only in the service for like, what, 70, uh, seven years. You started in 73, right? Correct. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd only been in seven years, but you know, the time in the military is a lifetime. Uh, for example, like when I was 21, I was in charge of a security for 10 intercontinental ballistic missiles. I mean, in <laughs> Montana, uh, <laughs> that was as a sergeant, not even, not even a staff sergeant, just a sergeant. I mean, so things like that, you, your, your experience level is intense. At least it was back then. I, I can't relate to today's military, but back then it was. Well, you grow up fast. I mean, you have to. I, I shouldn't. I should be nowhere around anything on, at the age of twenty-one with what I was doing. So that's fascinating. Uh, the maturity level that you're able to get, and the responsibility that they hand you—that's pretty interesting. Yeah, and uh, you know, it wasn't me. It was everybody I was around was like that. I mean, we were all like that. I mean, it was uh, you know, it was it was a pleasure to work with these guys. They're all professionals. And one of the things I'm going to bring up right now, because some people get a little upset when I don't talk about women in the career field. There was none. At that time, we didn't allow women in the career field, security police, all right? They were allowed in law enforcement uh, side of it, but not security. Uh, sorry. That's Just different the way times. it was. Different yeah, times. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, they end up uh, eventually while I was in and toward the latter part, they end up uh, opening up to, you know, both male and female. So... I always want to bring that up because people say, you're always talking about guys. You're always talking about the fellows. You're always talking about, you know, guys. And I said, yeah, that's because that's all we had. Yeah. Your response to that in the future could just be learn your history. You know, uh, that it's going to be OK. Women couldn't always vote. There was a very interesting time period that we've all gone through. Um, well, did your uh, military career is insane. And I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for your service. I have a high reverence for folks that choose to go into the military, and I'm just grateful for you. And I actually was going to do the Air Force as well. I went to Colorado Springs. I was super pumped about it. Um, it's just I needed corrective lenses for my vision, and um, you can't fly like that. And I didn't want to be a ground crew. I wanted to fly fighter jets. That was my thing. Uh, I tell you what, and uh, there's so many people I know that have uh, that had the same aspirations, but because of you know impairments, like what, which doesn't make any difference now, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. Vision. So uh, they you know contacts and laser and all this other stuff they can do. Uh, yeah, and what's interesting about Colorado Springs, uh, the officers that go there are one uh, percent of our uh, the top officers flying officers in the united states air force so you know they and those are the ones that end up fight you know flying the fighters and stuff uh well interesting fact is um uh, with rendlesham uh general uh williams then colonel williams he was a graduate of annapolis and uh which was that tells you how old he was yeah. <laughs> and he was in the air force then but uh you know those academy grads whether it's annapolis or whether it's at colorado springs or wherever are, are the top one percent of flying officers and they are the cream of the crop there's just no doubt about it oh those are the guys yeah absolutely mm -hmm. and now girls so well done time period mm -hmm. way to catch up uh well cool well way to uh bring it back uh, so let's talk about 
what you saw and what you experienced. So, uh, the Rendlesham Forest case is something I've been following for years. This is just one of the most well-documented cases, especially because of the meticulous nature in which it was recorded, as well as just the craziness that occurred. Uh, just all sorts of ancillary phenomena with this as well. And so I'd like to break this down with you, my friend. Now, I know that you've told this story a million times. I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, to tell it a million and one, and then I'd like to go through it with you as we do so, if you don't mind. So tell me about what happened December 26th of 1980. All right. With some brevity, so stop, you know, stopping anywhere and interject anywhere you want. Uh, it was a began as, as a normal shift uh we were doing uh, i was in charge of uh security for woodbridge base and uh which meant that i had about 15 16 security uh policemen that I was responsible for a couple of restricted areas with a10s um and then of course there was law enforcement who did the gate guard duty and stuff like that but they worked for the law enforcement flight chief um and so it was business as usual i ran through we got our people posted i ran through my checklists for what i usually did uh, like lighting checks on the perimeter and stuff like that i mean really mundane stuff and uh anyway the security response team leader says you know let's get together for you know morning breakfast at midnight you know and i said okay and so <laughs> i meet him there and he says, uh, it was Sergeant McCulley, and McCulley says, hey, Peniston, he says, do you hear, do you hear uh, they're asking for you on the radio? And I said, no, I couldn't hear it. So uh, he says, yeah, you're supposed to direct line. And so I went to the direct line there. And it's a direct line between the Chow Hall and the uh, Central Security Control at Downwaters. And Sergeant Coffey's on line, and I said, what's up? And he says, hey, you need to go to East Gate right away. He says, we have a situation out there. And I said, okay, what is it? Because they they would brief you. Well, they used to want to go to him blind. And you go, well, the two law enforcement guys out there will brief you on it. I go, what? That was odd to begin with. I went, what? And I said, okay. And he says, run code two. And that was even more odd because I still didn't know what's going on. And they want me to run with lights on the way there. I guess because they want me there fast. So um, I did. I arrived at the East Gate and um, I uh, contact Sergeant. Uh, uh, Bud Steffens, uh, he's a senior law enforcement guy. I said, what's going on, Bud? Because it looked pretty peaceful when I got there at the East Gate. Um, and I wasn't, wasn't sure what to expect. And he says, uh, he didn't say a word to me. He just points over into Reynolds from Forest at the tree line. I look over there and I go, oh, I was thinking, oh, that's strange. I could see multiple color lights and stuff in the, in the woods. And beyond the tree line there, and I says, oh, that sort of looks like a fire, you know. And uh, I said, Bud, I said, you, did you hear that go down? Because I started thinking it was an aircraft crash. He goes, he says it didn't crash. I said, what? It, it had to crash. I says, well, the trees are only like five and six feet apart in that forest. There's just no way anything could land there. I said, you sure? Are you sure? And he says, yes, it's positive. And I'm looking back over to it, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what, that's sort of, yeah, titanium could look like that burning, you know, yeah, okay. Because at that point in time, I'd probably been, I don't know, 20, 23, 24 aircraft crashes. Uh, you know, unfortunately, it was pretty common. Um, and so I went over to the direct line at the East Gate, 
and that is this direct patch. I know I'm getting a little too much detail, but it's a direct patching to law enforcement. Uh, and so I get a hold of the law enforcement guys to patch me right through the central security control. And he did. Uh, because once I arrived there, it was no longer a law enforcement situation. It was a security situation. Okay, that's how it works. Right, right. <laughs> so we call it chopping, change of operational command and control. And uh, it's pretty common. And um, so I get the security controller on. He says, uh, yeah, so we got what appears to be maybe a possible aircraft downing in, you know, in Reynolds Forest, which is about 300 yards away. And to give you an idea of the time that's being involved here, uh, when I called Central Security Control, CSC, uh, immediately I have the security controller on there, the comp plotter, the shift commander, the flight sergeant. <laughs> okay, these people are all right there. They're all got a headset on. They're all on the phone with me. And they're all doing their own little things as I'm reporting a possible aircraft crash. They're running checklists. They're making phone calls. Da, 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 you know, and this is all being done while I'm talking, uh, you know, to the uh, uh, flight sergeant. And uh, I said, "Is possible?" And then Sergeant Coffee interjects. He's a senior controller. He says, "Yeah." He says, "I just been in contact with uh, London Radar and Eastern Radar, and he says Bentwater's radar. He says we have a possible." aircraft down he said i think because we lost contact with a bogey about 15 minutes ago he says over woodbridge base so under the sofa agreement status forces agreement with the brits in the uk we must have a bona fide emergency to deploy off base you just can't go off base and start you know investigating things or stuff like that. You got to have an emergency situation. So therefore with the aircraft or with the uh, radar confirmation of, of losing a, a bogey over the base and my observations, an emergency situation existed of a possible aircraft downing. Lieutenant Baran, who was a uh, flight security officer, in the meantime is also talking to the wing command post by phone and he is in turn being patched through to the base commander, Colonel Conrad. And they're asking for permission for us to go off base and to investigate the crash. Usually, if we're running these, to give us some background, we're running an aircraft crash uh, security response option. Um, we are going to use our checklist. We're going to go out and plot it, find an exact location. I'm going to go ahead and determine where the most the best location is for the entry control point to be set up so we have our first responders, emergency people, all mortuary, all these other people coming in, fire department. So uh, that's what, uh, you know, is involved there. And um, so we got permission from Colonel Conrad to go ahead and deploy off base. Uh, I wanted to take, you know, my one of my sergeants with me, with security uh, sergeants, uh, Sergeant McCulley, who was ex experienced, and also maybe, uh, I said, the law enforcement, uh, Sergeant uh, uh, Steffens. Uh, he, he had actually been in the service longer than me. And um, they said, no, uh, leave McCulley there. Go ahead and take the new, the new airman that's working for the first night that night, Airman Kabanzak, lucky him and uh 
uh, you know, the law enforcement patrolman. And I said, who's that? And he said, well, he says, Burroughs. I said, oh, okay. And I was hesitant. I said, all right. Because first of all, uh, on an aircraft crash, security sets everything up. And you know, I, I have less work to do when the guy knows what he's doing, whether it's his first night or not, he's trained. Um, the only people that had radios was myself and uh, Airman Kabanzak. Um, so we were told to deploy off base. We didn't need to have weapons, which is fine for aircraft crash. Uh, I grabbed, uh, opened up the crash kit. We had a crash kit in my vehicle for, for that. <laughs> they had all the supplies you need. So I pull out the plotting board. Uh, oh, the camera we had for taking pictures of the accident scene, stuff like that. And, uh, uh, myself, Kabanzak and Burroughs, we, uh, deploy in my, my Jeep. It's a CJ seven, uh, blue and white Jeep. It's not uh, like the, you think of a military one. I mean, it just had bubbles on it, lights and stuff. So I drive out there as far as I can go off road. Uh, and the, the way it is, the forestry service, uh, uses the trees as a crop. Okay. They, once they grow to a certain level, they cut them, they replant, cut them, you know, that's how they do it. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and well, they're limited on their resources in that small country, so yeah, makes sense. You know, yeah. that's what, yeah, I mean, it's, it's okay to do that, you know, but they're doing it commercially, it's different. And uh, so, there's berms, earthen berms, uh, where the trees would normally be. And of course, at that time, it changes all the time. At that time, there was a clearing all the way up to almost the uh, tree line at um you know, the edge of the forest at Rendlesham. So there was about 200 yards of open area, which today is actually forested, but that back then it was uh, cut trees. And so I went as far as I could with that Jeep and I was starting to wonder if I was going to, you know, have problems, you know, tipping over that. And besides the first responders, the other, you know, like the fire department, all those people, they can only go so far with their vehicles, their regular vehicles. So I figured that was about as far as I could go. I set up the entry control point with uh, Aaron Kabanzak. He's got a radio. I tell him, uh, and we were having radio transmissions problems at the time uh, when we were out there uh, breaking up and stuff, which is unusual too, because we had a repeating system all over the twin bases. There's just no way that that would ever happen before that. Um, and so I says, uh, if, uh, if I start breaking up, make sure you relay everything to uh, CSC and to Sergeant, uh, uh, the, for the flight Sergeant, uh, Sergeant Chandler, who's responding to the East gate. He's taking my spot by the way, because I'm no longer on base. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, we had a multitask, you know, that's the way it is. And, uh, so I said, anything he says to do, you relate it to me and we'll do it. And so I'm at that point with uh, uh, Aaron Burroughs and myself, uh, you know, we, were, we probably only had 50 yards to go, maybe less to the tree line. Um, the coloring in the uh, woods was starting to dissipate. Um, there was more of a bright light, white light uh, emulating out of it. And, uh, so as I started getting toward the tree line and by the way, Burroughs is about 25 yards to the right of me. 
and I have Kabanzak who's sitting about 40, 50 yards at the entry control point that I set up. Um, and also, Central Security Control knows exactly where I'm at because I plotted in the entry control point. They know exactly where I'm at. So, you know, this is all important later on. It's all fascinating now. So this is very cool. Uh, and I've already just got a ton of questions about what you've just already asked, but please continue. Okay, let's go for it for right now and just remember where we left off. I, I will indeed. <laughs> it's uh, when you guys were in the forest approaching, and that's when uh, John Burroughs uh, was right next to you, about 25 feet. Okay, so I want to ask you about the radar. So uh, this was radar returned on three different stations. So my mm-hmm. question is, is where did it come from? What direction? Because just to set the scene for the audience, uh, this is in Suffolk County in England, which is just northeast of... Of London uh, and uh, Bentwaters is uh, more north, and then you've got the uh, forest in between the two, and then Woodbridge. So the forest actually spans between the two bases, Woodbridge yeah. being the satellite base. So this is right in between. So just for for some reference on on the further, like I said, northeast of London. So which Thank direction you. do you remember? Okay, the uh, base is sat sixty miles north uh, west of London. Okay. okay. And they were at about five miles off the coast of North Sea. Uh, Bentwater is the main operating base. Three miles away as a crow flies, Rundlesham Forest is in between the two bases, is uh, Woodbridge. So that's about three miles worth of forest there. Um, the, um, the twin bases, by the way, had over 10,000 personnel. Uh, military and civilians, they were pretty large. They were the largest tactical fire wing in the Air Force at the time. So, <clears throat> With the uh, radar confirmation out of Heathrow, the, the craft came out from uh, the west, heading east, okay? That's the first time that question's been asked, by the way. Uh, what well, might uh, be important? Yeah, <laughs> it is important. And so it was tracked. And the reason why uh, Heathrow... Uh, Heathrow thought it was a military aircraft because it didn't have a transponder on it. Ah, uh, you know? okay. Uh, so, you know, they figured it was military. And um, that makes sense? It it does. And it, it, it may allude to also that there's not much high strangeness that's being caught on radar or that they just assume that it's a military plane. So this is like a one-off. Right. I mean, because still at this point, you guys did not know what you were dealing with. You were You were looking forward to entering the forest to find a crashed aircraft. And instead, you found a landed UFO or hovering, rather. UFO, which is totally different, but the the radar is important on this, and that's why I asked. Okay, cool. And then you know, Benoit's they just do a circle of like 10, 15 miles out, twenty miles out, something like that. I don't know. You have to ask the expert on how far out they went. I mean, it wasn't too far. Uh, then Eastern Radar, which is at Broadsea, as a British uh, radar site, that wasn't far from uh, Woodbridge and Marcus from Heath, our communication site, our C three facility, C three facility there. It was on the other side of that, so that was probably about eight miles or ten miles away. That was responsible for all of Eastern Radar. It makes sense why they call it Eastern Radar. All the east side of, uh, uh, of Suffolk and uh, 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 Suffolk County, which ran all the way from the RF Milton Hall and Lake and Heath, all the way down to South End, that covered that whole section, uh, uh, Norfolk and that. Um, so it came out of the West. Okay. And Heathrow would be the furthest West point of radar return that you guys had gotten, right? Yeah. But you know, like I said, we're, we're only 60 miles Northwest of the, 
of uh, London Heathrow. So, you know, uh, and the other thing is uh, when it's air flight, even a slow flight, you know, it doesn't take long to get from point A to point B. I mean, especially over there, 60 miles is nothing. Yeah, it's not Texas. Yeah, I hear you. Right, uh, we, right. we measure distance in hours here. Um, okay, and, and it is interesting because I'm now, I'm now just curious about the radar. I, I now want to know how far to the west it came from. Like, did it come all the way from the shore? Did it make a north and then turn from the west? Or were they just able to pick it up once it reached within their radar range, of course? Uh, and did it just make then a straight line to Rendlesham Forest? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, that's okay. No, no, no. It, it's not something, like I said, that I'd heard I don't know. I, I'm sure that, uh, you know, whoever the operator was at Heathrow knows that, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, not to say that information was never discovered or obtained. It probably was. I just don't know. I'm just curious, like if it came out of the water or if it came from the area of another military base that was found out to be secret or one of the dumbs, you know, the deep underground military bases. So there, I, I was just curious about that um, part of it. It just may be relevant. So also, I wanted to ask you about, um, so you've established the point, um, your entry control point, which is fantastic, man, about 50 yards outside of the tree line. It's uh, you and two other officers. So three of you total went out in your Jeep, the Renegade. Now, I just picture this thing also, by the way, with that badass eagle on the front of it or that phoenix, right? Right, that renegade thing. Uh, so also I wanted to <laughs> ask you about your uh, electronic disturbance. So this happened with your radios when you guys got closer, correct? Uh, when I noticed it, especially when I got to the, where I set the entry control point up. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I had a lot of confusion going on there. I couldn't figure out why it was doing that because it's never happened before. Uh, we had those repeating systems for that purpose. I mean, they're all over the, the you know, Bentwaters and Woodridge Bay, so you wouldn't have a, <clears throat> a problem with it. Um, the frequencies that were used on our IBRs, interbase radios, were security, law enforcement, and the command net. And of course, the fire department had theirs too. Uh, but uh, so it was important for us to have a repeating system. Uh, but when I started losing, uh, when, the, when the radio was starting to break up, uh, and it was my transmissions I was receiving were starting to break up. Uh, I didn't get a complaint from Central Security Control about mine breaking up or anything. It was I, receiving. Okay, uh, which receiving. makes sense. Okay. It's it's still interesting, and that's a wonderful point that you bring up, is that you didn't have- That's a, the first time that's been asked. Yeah, but you didn't have a problem being heard, but you did have an issue receiving where you were located, which is just adjacent to this right. craft. Right, and, and that, was, that was confirmed after the incident uh, when I went back to security control. Uh, so I knew about it after the fact, too. Yeah. Which is still interesting because you had some physical effects, which uh, so uh, let me turn you loose if you don't mind back on your story. I just wanted to establish those couple of things. They were just something I'd, I was curious about that I'd never heard anybody ask you. So that's why I asked. Uh, so you're you're about 50 yards out where you set the entry control point. You, John Burroughs, John Burroughs is uh, just to your right. You said about uh, 25 yards and you guys are walking through the forest. What happens next? Right. All right. Get up to a tree line. Like I said, the colors had dissipated. Pretty much because well, mainly because of that bright white, there's a bright white light inside the forest, just not far in. And uh, I knew at that point that it was an aircraft crash. I did. I determined that much because just didn't have none of them the makings of one at that point. So I called in. I terminated the uh, uh, security response option for the uh, aircraft downing. 
and I implemented the security response option, which was a helping hand. A helping hand is up-channel report, telephonically done by radio, um, of a possible hostile threat. Okay. Due to the uh, resources that we had at the base, the priority A, priority B, and priority C resources, the airplanes, the uh, ordnance, and things like that, uh, it was you know it was a threat. And you also have to look at the time. Uh, the time in 1980 was a huge threat with a different type of terrorism. Okay, um, we had groups like Bader-Meinhof and Red Brigade and you know the RAA and Black September. I mean, these are different types of groups, and uh, we also had like uh, Lowestoft, which was a port that was only like 10 miles away. We had uh, Russian sailors coming in there. Um, you know, things like that. There's just a lot of, there's a threat, a high threat. Plus, you know, the height of the Cold War. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, so I implemented the helping hand. Um, and that, that goes to Sergeant Coffee, and they discuss it in there, and then they send it up telephonically or by phone to the wing command post. Goes to the wing command post to numbered air force at Mildenhall. From Mildenhall, it goes to MAGCOM, Major Command at Ramstein. <laughs> From Ramstein, it goes to the Pentagon. Okay? This reminds me of uh, the scene in uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Whenever Have you ever seen that movie or read the book? No. Okay, there's a scene in it where aliens come and destroy the planet for a... Spoiler alert, by the way. Uh, destroy the planet. Uh, this happens straight <laughs> out the gate. Uh, for an international highway, like a bypass, right? And so, But they're full of all this bureaucracy. So this is one of the things that's... Uh, advantageous for our protagonists later on because they get caught up in the bureaucracy and they don't go chase them, right? For the same thing that you're talking about here, where immediate action is needed, but there's so much red tape and, you know, chains of command to go through to execute it. It's silly. Okay, just put this in perspective how fast the timeline's working right now. Mm -hmm. I arrived at the East Gate about 12 midnight, 12.03, okay? That's why I had my notebook. Um, because I have to reports later on. That's why you record <laughs> these the times now. Um, and uh, from that time there at twelve oh three arrival, um, I would say that only five minutes passed, or maybe seven or eight minutes, uh, to where I'm at at the tree line. It that's how fast everything's moving. Right. Um. So, anyways, by implementing that, you know, and I was fine because Burroughs was at a distance over to the right, and then we had Kabanzak, who I visually can see, and farther at the east gate, I can see Sergeant Chandler's there. So, you know, uh, everything's everything seems okay. Um, uh, my job at that point in time, by implementing that uh, SRO, is to determine, you know, if there's a hostile threat, and if it is, you know, uh, report it. Uh, I'm unarmed at this point. I'm not going to do anything else but report. Um, that was a little bit concerning. Okay. Yeah. I was like, you know, I wish I was armed. Well, you it's know? interesting. They don't, is it that they don't allow you to take sidearms or that they're not required so you can make the choice? The the Brits under the SOFA agreement, Status Force Agreement, didn't allow us to take weapons off base unless there was an emergency situation. I, I barely went over that. Yeah, that was yeah, part of the SOFA. That's right. And, uh, you know, we could have took it, and there's just no need to take uh, uh, weapons for aircraft crash. I mean, well, if it's Russian and the dude survives, a radio know. call away, I could have more people there. And, That's fair. You know. 
Okay. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Okay. And but, then also, uh, I was just going to yes. say for the audience also, we keep saying the words, uh, the acronym RAF, that stands for Royal Air Force. So that's what an RAF base is. It's a Royal Air Force base that we were kind of helping out with or occupying or uh, no, working. No, well, there, was, there was our base. <laughs> that, and that's it was what I've too. It's I'll like your you, after base. World War, after World War II, uh, we didn't, the, you know, the Brits had that Lend-Lease stuff, you know, borrowing ships and all that stuff. Anyway, we got the lease agreement. Uh, it was a, I believe it was a hundred year lease on those bases. Uh, they're ours, but you know, of course we're in a foreign country. So, you know, the Brits, it's still called an RAF base. Right. And they had to have a RAF, uh, squadron commander, uh, on the basis of liaison, you know, because that makes the Brits feel better. You know, and, and it's like a, <laughs> but everything country. we did, everything we did was, you know, it was, it, we had, most of the classified stuff we were doing was for U.S. eyes only. It wasn't shared, okay? Some was with the NATO releasable and stuff like that, but for the main part, most of the stuff we did was non-releasable to foreign nationals. So, you know, I know it probably doesn't sit well with the British, but that's the way it is, you know. It's the way it is. I mean, that's just how it is. Okay, so my apologies. So you're you're approaching the craft now. So you've already determined that it is not a uh, downed aircraft. Uh, it's something else, and that's why you put the call out. So response is on the way. What happened next? Okay. Uh, well, I start taking pictures at that point in time because – I got a lot. Of, I got a lot of pictures. I got royal film, um, and I might say I don't have to take an aircraft crash, so I'm going to start taking pictures of what's going on because uh, I don't have a weapon either. So, so I'm shooting with the camera. We had we had cam We had like Canon A ones. There, I don't know if that makes any difference. Uh, they held like a 36 roll of film, black and white. I think the ASA on them were 400. They're pretty good film. I mean, but. So I shot with shooting on that. And so, as a matter of fact, I was panicking type shooting. And so I shot way too much. As a matter of fact, I shot to the point where I ran out as I entered the woods. Before and, you could even uh, make it. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I wish I could do things differently. But was there, I mean, but that would be cool too. I mean, were you, so let me ask you about the film then. Uh, now that we're at that point, were you able to see it developed or was it confiscated? No, I dropped the film off at the base photo lab, did a work order on it. Uh, when I went and picked up, they were all whited out, which I thought was odd. Um, but then I find out even years later when I talked to Monroe Nevels, Sergeant Nevels, who worked disaster preparedness, he, the, the following morning when he was sent out to investigate the first night landing, he took pictures and everything too, and his didn't sh turn out either. And he developed his, he's a, he's a pride, like his hobby was photography. So he developed his at his house. And Monroe, I said, what, what's the deal? I said, oh, he says, the reason he says uh, they didn't turn out is because of the beta ra radi radiation. Went, so oh. electronic disturbance coming into the area, uh, photos don't develop, even even though you use two different means of developing. Like that, that's fascinating. Man. Yeah. And two different, yeah. Like in, in, in the next morning, you know, Monroe had the same problem with beta. He could go into a lot of more information about it, but the beta is a short lived radiation. Okay. It was right at the landing site, but apparently, uh, you know, unlike gamma rays, you know, which are deadly, you, know, yeah. you get those puppies, you're not going to, 
be around very long. Or you turn into the Hulk uh, whenever you get upset. Like those are your two yeah. options. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty bad. And, um, well, what this points to is very interesting because it, it shows that we can rule out, um, malicious intent, uh, with these. So sometimes you'll hear, you know, of, um, damn it. I forget, uh, who was it that talked about that? Uh, there's been a lot of people who've talked about, um, craft being landing, uh, them getting footage of it, and then the CIA or some official branch of the government coming in and confiscating it. And so this rules that out. It seems like that was a little earlier than we were doing that at this point. Um, but then also, it it's one of those things that if it didn't develop, there's a scientific explanation for it rather than a nefarious one. So this is important in, to the story. In this case, that's in this the, case. The, yes. This situation, I can't speak for none of those wrestlers. No, and of course not. It's <laughs> but, just you, we've heard it several times from several different folks. I just can't think of the name off the top of my head. Um, but those, that this is an interesting point to the to the story, though. So that's why I'm saying it. The uh, so as I started going in there, I was I could feel like you know static electricity. At first, I'm thinking adrenaline. You know, your adrenaline's causing this where you feel like you got static on your back, of your you know, your neck and hair, face, clothes. Uh, I'm saying, oh, I, said, I got to calm down. Stay, you know, I had to gra- stay grounded. And got, the thing that was grounded me actually, that helped me, uh, was I was running my checklist. You know, for the uh, response option. I mean, that helped. Uh, believe me, there was a range of emotions that were just crazy. Uh, from fear to awe to oh, just just crazy stuff. Anyway, um, as I approached, that's when I started feeling, besides the static electricity, and, uh, you know, and all I could see, because of the berms, there was a berm in front of me. Uh, over that is a, this white light you know, and pretty, fairly bright. I mean, this forest, I mean, uh, just give you uh, an idea that, uh, you know, the trees that close together with the canopy, the way it is, uh, it's pretty dark. I mean, it's very dark and I didn't even need a flashlight. Okay. We had, I had a flashlight, but I never used it. It didn't need it. And I had enough light for that. Let me let me you ask you about uh, yeah I do I before before we go over the berm and experience the craft visually for the first time in this in this account were the lights that you could see that the craft was emanating were they white and solid or colored and oscillating or were they white and oscillating like did you see a pulse of any kind or was it pretty no I had a, I, I had a bubble of white light that was over show, over the top of the berm that's all I could see. Okay, got it. And it was, uh, it was solid. It was, okay. Yeah, it was it was solid. And to say it's white, I don't know. It was bluish white. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's, uh, it was bluish yellow at times. I mean, depends on where you're looking at it. At. And uh, yeah. Well, and you got a better view of it. Uh, so yeah. take, take us over the berm to the craft. Well, as I was coming to the berm, that's uh, when I was besides the, uh, the static lectures. Yeah. Uh, I was feeling, you know, like um, my movements were labored. And I used the comparison of like walking waist deep through a pool of water because that's that's the resistance I was getting. And I was like, oh, that is really bizarre. And uh, yeah, and but that uh, is like right around where the craft was, like within 15 feet. I mean, I, I was pretty close in on that. Um, as I came up over, get ready to go over the berm, there was a f- 
big flash of white light. I mean, a big one. And I guess out of reaction, uh, I just hit the ground. Uh, there was no sound to it or nothing like that. I mean, uh, I, but out of reaction, I just was, I reacted to it and I just hit the ground. And of course, not hearing no explosion or anything like that, I got out. And then as I covered the top of the berm, I seen the light start to dissipate down, the white light. As that started dissipating down, I could start seeing the formation of a black uh, craft triangular in there. And here's while you still have the white light, you can still see like globular pieces of light in the fabric of the craft, the skin of it, that was going in and out of it, different colors. And that was starting to slow down. And finally, they just dissipated along with the white light. All I had was a light, a white light coming out from the bottom of the craft. Still didn't need no flashlights. Um, as I can't got closer to the craft, my movements became less restrictive. I still had the static electricity, but it was just less restrictive. And also, there was a uh, like a really deadening of uh, the sound. I could hear no force sounds like uh, the wind going through the trees and the branches and crunching of you know forest floor and stuff like that. I didn't hear. That was uh, bizarre. This is on my list to ask you anyway. It's called the Oz effect. So this is something that happens in a lot of high strangeness cases is that you lose all sound of everything. Leaves crunching, wind blowing, animals in the like the normal sounds that you should hear in nature become deafeningly silent. And that is an interesting point that you made. Uh, but before we move on, I just have a question about the lights because this this is fascinating to me. So do you think that the light flashed that way in response to your approach or do you just think that it was part of its i guess landing protocol that you just happened to happen upon it at that stage if i could guess i guess at it my guess would be that it was part of landing protocol okay because then it seemed to be almost <clears throat> either <clears throat> excuse me either powering down or materializing depending on oh no it was no my impression was that it was powering down okay that's a good i'm glad you brought that up uh yeah. Oh, p uh, please. Why? Why do you say that? Uh, because the, the less intensity of the white light to, to be disappeared, where you see just a craft, and then the other thing is because of the globular light that was running around inside the, the craft, that finally just started dissipating and slowed and disappeared. That's why it looked like it powered down. Well, and also the nauseating or the uh, difficulty in traversing the physical effects that you felt from the environment of the presence of this craft, uh, it seems like they lessened at the same time you got closer. So this could be two things. It could be a sphere of influence kind of a thing, like the closer you get to it, the easier it is to get to, kind of like a moat. Let's say, for instance, maybe this is part of the uh, defense protocol that they've got where they set out an area where it's just horrible to walk through, where it's very uncomfortable and it, you, you don't want to go in there. And that keeps people away while they're doing what they're doing. Or it could be a result of the propulsion or the mechanism in which it operates um, being something that whenever you happened upon it, it was powering down at that time. Therefore, the effects lessen. All that, all that could very well be the case. It could all be the case. I don't know. Uh, my 
my impression at the time and today are the same. Uh, I felt like this fear of influence, this direct area around it, like it was trying the the the, the timing. It was trying to catch up. Mm. It wasn't. It wasn't same as what was outside back where Burroughs was, or it, it was different. Because when I looked back at them, I did look at them. Uh, Kavanzak was just standing there. I mean, he was motionless. And then over here where Burroughs was, he was motionless, just standing there. And I was like, uh, either that, either they're scared to death and they're frozen, or uh, there is they're not seeing this as I'm seeing it. I mean, I, there, there's a different influence going on here. That's what it sounds like, right? It's it's a proximity thing, but also it's a timing thing. It's just but you happened upon it and got to that distance as it was powering down. So therefore, perhaps it could be a result of that, not necessarily a sphere of influence. Either, like you said, either absolutely possible. So let me ask you this. Kabansak and you were the only two that had a radio. Was he radioing to you to ask what you saw from your vantage point at any point in this? <clears throat> I continued, uh, as I even approached the tree line, I continued to do my security status checks. That's just part of our normal operating procedure. Security, AOK, fence, post, whatever. You you use a random word in there and not use the uh, duress word. Gotcha. You know? Yeah, yeah. Everything's fine. It's just <laughs> weird. Uh, yeah, yeah, so you well, were... yeah, you want to you make, make sure they're comfortable. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't sure if it was survival because I didn't know what really happened, why these guys aren't moving, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't know I was going to survive and uh, this encounter or this situation. So my job at that point in time is to get as much information as I can. All, all I got, my amount of film, so all I got is my uh, notebook. So I'm going to sit here and try to get as much information recorded so uh that survives and it is uh, available to the command element to make command decisions and whatever they do you know um that that's my job at that point at least that's what i determined my job was um uh, get as much of the information as i could and document it and i that's what i did i mean i had no measuring devices out there uh, or nothing like that so i had to use what i had my like my, I paced off the craft, which was nine feet. My, my, my strides about three. So that's a guess. Okay. okay. I was, pretty I close. Was, what I was going to ask you, do you do, do you do the stride, which is like a yard or three feet or you do you do the heel toe thing? Do you do both or both units of measurement for you? Uh, the reason I asked my be, wife, it'd be, me, it'd be heel toe, I guess. Okay. okay. See, and my wife gives me crap. I had, about to, think, this. I had <laughs> to think about that one. I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> well, a lot of people will use their stride, uh, which is like three feet or like a yard. Um, but then also they'll count heel to toe, which is about a foot, you know, depending on what size your foot is, but you can rough estimate and just call it a foot. Uh, but this is how I measure stuff. If I don't have a measuring device out here in the, in the field. And, uh, my wife always thinks it's hilarious. I'm like, babe, this is how we do it. It's accurate. Right. So it's nice to see, uh, that, uh, we're still doing that. So, okay. Now, and I've, I've just got to compliment you on it, man, because uh, your drawings, which I will be putting, of course, guys, in the show notes, the video audience, I'll go ahead and flash a couple here at this point. Uh, you did some wonderful hand drawings, the way that you detailed this out. I am no, I am no artist, okay? Uh, but you still and besides, I'll tell you what, so my well. notebook, my notebook, one of the, one of the th- issues I have when I, when I look at it, the pages that is, um, 
I knew I, you can see in the shakiness of my writing, just how at times, uh, what a mess I was. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And so I tried my best on, you know, draw down descriptions. Uh, the, uh, it was a little hard to tell with the uh, height of the craft because of the berm and how it was, you know, sitting there. Um, I'm six, two. So I figured out oh, six and a half. So I'm guessing, you know, my estimate, you know, yeah. six and a half, seven feet. That's about how tall it is to the dorsal fin of the craft in the back. Or the front. I don't know if the, what was back. I don't know what it was. Um, well, the way it looked aerodynamically from your drawings looks like you. That was the front. Like you, we, the way we associate it aerodynamically is the what we would assume to that. But you're right. I, it could flown upside down and sideways because that's been another thing that um, I know. Even Bob Lazar talks about this that the craft actually turns and the gravity amplifiers pull it. So it flies unaerodynamically from our perspective. You know. It, so it is interesting. That's a great point. The uh, the craft was above the you know the ground. Uh, there was like I said, light coming down from underneath the beams. I used the term light because that's not what it was. Because it was it had to be holding the craft up. Okay, so what type of technology is it that looks like light that holds craft? I don't know what it is. So uh, at first I said, well, that's that's impossible for light to do that," and so I tried to push the craft i figured i'd get movement out of it because i didn't think it was fixed but it was but it just wasn't landing gear like i was used to i mean or was expecting um this by the way is absolutely brilliant because you uh walked up to this crazy thing having felt the way you felt uh radio issues uh you would later have film issues you have all of these things shaky hands with notes and your first thing is i'm just going to touch this thing to see if i can move it a bit and that is yeah, amazing I, uh, it's well great. i figured if, if you had a cadillac parked out there yeah car, you rock it a bit right you could, yeah. it, it, we'd have to move a little bit wouldn't it i mean that's that's on the ground it's on top of the ground with tires and i figured that would this thing was solid and uh no movement and so more perplexing uh and and obvious that we you know and being an off at air force base which i brought up earlier uh with those classified briefings for all the uh you know uh, we had 36 generals there and different branches and all this other stuff and nato and seal and everybody there uh these briefings we did uh, a lot of research and development uh, briefings and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm there for security. However, you, you know, you get to see everything that's being planned for the yeah, next you're 50 in the show. years, you know? Yeah. And, uh, there's nothing even close to that. Even today. No, 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 no. Even, even today for what happened at Rendlesham is, I don't think can be replicated. Okay. The other thing is besides measuring this off, I'm doing a lot of things at this time. I'm looking for all the things that make an aircraft fly. Okay. Uh, first of all, the fabric of the craft, the skin, is just absolutely seamless. It's like like glass. Um, so I'm looking for intakes. I'm looking for exhausts. I'm looking for a crew compartment. I'm looking for flaps and aerions and blah 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 blah. All the things that make an airplane, you know, fly. This is a brick. This thing cannot fly. It doesn't have anything that we need to have to make it fly, okay? But it's sitting there into a space in this small clearing 
out in the middle of this forest? How did it get here? You know, these are a lot of questions <laughs> that are simultaneously just running through my head. I mean, just uh, impossible. Because, you know, uh, yeah, the whole situation seemed impossible, but reality was different. I mean, you had, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so uh, the, the the air temperature was about 32 degrees. We find this out afterwards. Um, but the craft appeared to be warm to touch. Uh, Monroe Neville's told me later on, he says, that's not because it was hot. It was because it was radioactive. Yeah. It was, <laughs> It was beta, and I'm saying, well, how you know that? Because I I started checking out, well, how bad is beta? What can it do? And unfortunately, it's only uh, temporary. The situation. Oh, that's good. Beta. Yeah. Oh, I was like, oh. <laughs> like thank God. You yeah. Be, yeah. When you told me that, we were, I don't know, we were talking on the phone. I go, are you kidding me? I said, beta. Uh, I said, is that why it was warm? He said, oh yeah. I said, that you get warmth out of it. But how warm are we talking? Like, were you, okay, so it's thirty degrees outside. You're in uh, England in December. Uh, did you were you wearing gloves? Uh, no. Okay, and so when you touch the craft, um, I no, just have so many questions. Fifty degrees, I would say fifty degrees. So it wasn't scalding, but it was definitely significantly warmer than oh, the outside temp. Air temps like thirty two, but you touch something that's you know uh, maybe like. Uh, you know, your car's been running outside today. You said it's like 32 degrees or something like that out there. You go out there and touch your hood, you're going to feel warmth. Okay, perfect. Okay, this is a, a great way to put it. Um, now, I'm also curious, when you touch the craft, did you feel any vibration or anything to give you the impression that something was running, like a motor or anything on the inside? No, it was completely silent. There was no vibrations, nothing like that. Um, then as I... Um, yeah, it is. I mean, this this whole story, yeah. man. Like the, this whole damn story. Okay, please continue. Uh, yeah. So this, you know, forty years later, I still get a little. I'm trying. I'm not stuttering because I can't think of what to say. It's just I get sometimes it bothers me. That's all. Well, it's you got know. to. And if you ever want to, I, I really work on it. You know, I you know I figure writing two books. You know, they always say the best therapy is to write everything down. <laughs> Yeah, well, it does help. It does help, but you know, come on. But I still, and I tell you, what else helps is speaking about it at a conference. That helps me. Uh, some I've had horrible conferences when I first started, where I couldn't. I just had to leave. I was done in the middle of it. I mean, I can you imagine you pay to to hear someone talk and you just leave. Well, <laughs> I did that. Yeah, you know? but it's understandable, man. I mean, this had to give you some PTSD. Uh, you, this is not normal. And I, I want to go into that deeper with you. I, I have a couple, like I said, I've, I've told several people that you were coming on. So I have some listener submitted questions for you. And one has to do with that. So, um, and if I just have to say this as well, if I ever ask you anything that you're not comfortable with, please just tell me that you'd rather not talk about it and we'll move on. Like, absolutely. please. Brandon, you can, after what I experienced out there, there's nothing you can ask me that would be uncomfortable compared to what happened out there. Okay. Fair, I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. It's just all you're looking for is you got questions and that's, and I have questions too, even though that's, I do have some knowledge of it. There's still questions. I mean, we all, uh, I wish I did have the, I don't know if I wish I had the answers or not. I don't know. 
It's, it's crazy. Well, let's go into that. Um, but I'd, I'd like for you to uh, tell me what happened next on your uh, story. And then we've we've got a lot after this to talk about. So um, the next thing that happened, what what went down? Because your story gets a lot inter- more interesting. So everybody oh, yeah. out there listening, if you're not familiar oh, with yeah, this, it, it's about to get crazy. Well, yeah, you think it's uh, – well, I was pretty I – was, I was starting to feel pretty good, actually, uh, after, as I started, you know, pacing off the craft and taking the notes because it's inert. It's not doing nothing. It's, it's, it's not, not a threat. No, it's not a threat. There's not flashing little lights running through the craft. I mean, it's just sitting there. Not a big turret sitting on top of it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm saying I'm still okay. I'm not hurt. Uh, great. You know, and so it looks like I have a lot of time. That's what I figured. I have a lot of time. I have time for, yeah, I have time for responses. I have time for additional responses from security forces. I have, see, one of the reasons for the helping hand, and I didn't terminate that at all until after the incident, was um, at that time, one of the scenarios, it could be a ruse. It could be a, uh, to misdirect security forces a situation you know why they would hit someplace else on the base or <laughs> so we had all that and that's why there was a restraint on how many people went out there who went out there was there why wasn't there immediate you know 15 people following up and responding they just we didn't we had a uh our economy of force was not that huge. I don't want to get into the details on that, but yeah, it's not it's classified. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yes, it's not a good idea. <laughs> but you want to? <clears throat> you could actually set up a diversion, and we really have another objective in mind. You know, so that was part of the. That's going through my head. To oh man, I mean, there's a lot of things going on through my head. Uh, but I was, uh, you know. I still did my security checks, and I still was still writing. I mean, I'm fumbling too, and I got a radio. <laughs> oh, God. We didn't have headsets and stuff out there. It was yeah, it was sort of a mess. And as I uh, <clears throat> went back around, I got a little bit of hope because I could see that there was some type of writing on the craft. Oh, I went, oh, thank God! I hope it says something like NASA, uh, even a sickle and you know something like that on it or anything you know even though it was beyond any technology known in the james book of records or aircraft as far as i knew or in development according to the research and development at offit uh i was hoping that it was something familiar on it but uh, uh it wasn't like that when i got around it, i it wasn't writing uh, you know or numbers it was uh, uh i call them glyphs uh, glyphs that were symbols that were written. They wrenched. I'm using my hands here because that's all I have to measure with out there. They were about f- five to six feet wide. Uh, there was uh, uh, a row of uh, symbols on the bottom. Uh, then there was a larger one that was on top, which was a circle with a triangle and with three other little circles in it so i I recorded them and i don't know if i sent you that photo or the uh part of the photo you did and i'm putting it up here so uh, other artists have as well gone through and done digital recreations of this based on your account i'll put that up as well so guys that's what the symbols look like this is what he saw on the side of the craft three about spanned about five to six feet it's about five to six inches tall 
Right. The the, the symbols uh, themselves on the row on the bottom, they were about five inches high. And this is how I measured. Okay. You can guess it. Whatever you think that is, <laughs> I call five inches. Yeah, it's five. Yeah, I'd go eight max, but yeah, five for sure. Okay. And uh, the one on top was a lot bigger, maybe like a huge dinner plate size. Okay. Uh, the circle anyway. Anyway, so I'm touching the... Uh, the the uh, craft itself. And like I said, it felt like smooth, smooth, like black glass. There was no rivets, nothing like that. And when I say black glass, I'm talking about that was the coloring of it, uh, the smoothness of it. But did I think it was glass? No, it was metal. There's def definitely some kind of metal. I just don't know what it was. Um, and so I kept on walking, did my thing. 360 and I stop and I'm thinking you know what there's this thing's void of everything except those markings on the other side that's got my interest and so I'm going on the other side I'm going to sit there and check them out more uh, not the best move it wasn't it, it, when I figured in the end anyway so when I got back around you know on, and I'll tell you what, the smoothness of the craft like I said I went over the black glass part but when I got to the symbols they equated and I tell you this they were like etched in the craft itself and they felt like going from the smooth black glass to like sandpaper of course sandpaper that's what it felt like and so those symbols are on the bottom and uh, then I'm fascinated by the one on top because it's uh, unusual. It's uh, not in the same row. It's got, it's got, it's got this. It's larger. I mean, there's just the triangle seem familiar because I don't know. We're just used to seeing triangles, aren't we? Um, you know, throughout our lifetime or something, uh, math or whatever. Yeah, geometry. It is. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Um, so I touch it, right? And when I touched it, I'm blinded. I mean, I'm, you know, mind, I'm blinded where I cannot see nothing but pure white and nothing else. That's it. Okay. Okay. Let, let me stop you there. So uh, whenever you uh, had this flash of light, did the light come from the craft or was this in your mind's eye? I don't know. Uh, mine's eye. I don't know. I can't. Uh, to well, it me, would be hard uh, to tell. I mean, and even if to uh, me, I would say I. I actually thought at the moment it was from the craft. Okay, but I. I discount. I, I discounted that pretty fast later. I'll tell you why. Uh, well, anyway, so I'm touching this right, and I got this this bright white light. And the mind's eye part, I would say, would be the seeing these flashing of ones and zeros. So oh yeah. What the? I said, what the fuck is that? <laughs> you know, this whole thing was like, you know, <laughs> uh, I mean, you took an unbelievable situation and got more unbelievable, more unbelievable, more unbelievable. I mean, that's what was going on. And then I just sort of gained my senses. And all I did was just lift my hand off. Cause I was aware I was touching it. And I just lifted my hand off and it was gone. It was everything back normal. And that's what's, that's what tells me that, there's something that happened that was a technology that I still don't understand, a communication or where you want to call it. Because out in that forest, and as dark as it is, and you have something that bright, you would have no night vision for at least an hour, I would say. Maybe 45 minutes, maybe a half hour at tops. 
No night vision. It's the equivalent like I had. I had night vision. Like it never happened. That's crazy. So it had to be more of a mind's eye thing. Plus, I I was going to just ask also to this. uh, John Burroughs didn't mention a flare up or anything like that. The other two officers that you were with, they didn't mention seeing it pulse really brightly at any point. We didn't talk immediately. Uh, We didn't talk about the incident at all. Okay, interesting. Uh, uh, Not really. Uh, I overheard what he's seen um, at the uh, debriefing three days later or two days later. Yeah. You know, because I was there, um, Kabanzak, uh, I, uh, heard what he said. It was on a, a documentary actually, what he's seen, you know, it's out of his mouth. So I, I believe it. Uh, um, he also said that, he was told, and this was a, this is another thing and part of the cover-up, he was told to go ahead and just sign uh, a pre-written statement, mm-hmm. which to me, sends, that, is, that is exactly uh, what happened to me. And uh, this is after I gave him a statement, and they, they went and rewrote it, and I got this, after four pages of, you know, legal pad writing, I get a little type single-space <laughs> piece of thing like this is so generic and it was like got within 50 meters and it was mechanical in nature and that's about it but that's the story i had to tell like i said i had to tell that to the base and wing commander when they see me that day the and I says, uh, that ain't what happened. They said, well, you say that's where's the open investigation. You say that this goes away. Okay. It goes away. Yeah. And when, you know, open investigations like that, um, I'm getting off subject here, but, um, I always felt bad, um, telling, you know, the wing commander and that this, 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 what I was told to write, uh, from, uh, my, for the, by the agents down there what to say okay and i I, so i got to meet uh retired general williams out in uh, tucson a few years back and i says you know general williams i says i gotta apologize to you i says for lying to you that day with the story that you know i got at the osi building he told me i had to say this if i was asked anything about this he is so cool he goes but his response was unique he says don't worry about Jim. He says we all follow orders. That's right. That's right. And I mean, you were what twenty six at the time. Yeah, he says don't worry about it. And I was, I felt guilty about it for all those years. And he's just like, don't worry about it. We all follow orders. But that tells me he said he had his orders. Uh huh. So yeah, he's he probably the- had to sign some things that he didn't write too. Yeah. It's very interesting, yeah, man. Yeah. And they just let you, they made you take all the woo out of it, which is just crazy to me. I mean, that's like the most interesting part of the story, which I'm grateful for that you've, you've come out now and written your amazing book, The Rendlesham Enigma, which we haven't even mentioned yet. But of course, guys, it's going to be linked down in the show notes. Make well, sure all that this, you check this All thing this out. information is in the Enigma book and more. And more. You, uh, that book you wrote, ton, uh, what, how many pages? 703? 702? Yeah, 702 okay. pages of like, that, which is different than most of your books on incidents 300 pages my co-author uh wrote were endnotes to back up everything we're saying yeah i mean in fact yeah. this was yeah you gotta you gotta go ahead and back up what you're saying just don't okay, take my word for it because the goal of the book is first is the history of what happened the history book of what happened and of uh, the landing and the aftermath 
and uh, I guess the other important part of uh, uh, of the book is to make sure the public had the facts and whatever they if they have the facts they can determine whatever they want to believe after they read it i don't care i mean at least they have the facts they can make up their own minds oh you know penison's crazy uh no this happened uh uh whatever i don't care that's uh but at least the facts are presented and then uh, they can make up their own mind the reader and that's that was the whole intent behind the book and still is the whole intent even talking about today it's not i'm not here to convince you or or and i don't want i i want you to get the facts and i want you to go ahead and uh make your own decisions on it that's what you got to do all right that's what i want you to do anyway well i find you credible and for several reasons you're just very altruistic i've heard this story many times i've heard you retell it many times and it stays the same uh you've gotten new information that you've been willing to come out with but not add to uh, for any nefarious reason, man. I'd, I'd take you as altruistic. As well as, I mean, you've got the next night when it happened, December 28th, just two nights later, and you have Colonel Charles Halt out there with a recorder, uh, got to see it again. And so you've got redundancies in this. You, you, you're you good, man. And the people that don't want to listen to it, that's fine. The first night, I mean, when I wrote uh, the first book, I was writing that, uh, all the guys that I worked with that night, most of them, I would say that 90% were still in contact, okay, we're today. Uh, they had, they said, well, make sure you put this in there. I've I seen this from this point. And make sure you add that in, whatever. So I was getting their input, too, on what they seen from peripheral uh, standpoint. You know what I mean? Yeah, Wherever they were right, at as a witness. Yeah. 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 And, uh, well, like, for example, uh, um, uh, Bertolino, who's, who is actually uh, – I believe he was on. Uh, he might. He can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe I get mixed up sometimes the names. Uh, I believe he was uh, on Bentwaters uh, on a security response team with uh, Sergeant Hall, and they actually seen the landing. I never did see a landing. Right. Right. They actually saw the first. Yeah. And I mean, and then then the, you know they actually seen the you know the takeoff, and I was too close for the the takeoff like they seen it from their from their vantage point you know this bubble of light that was over the canopy of the woods they they seen it take off up in the air make you know move and then take off over toward the north sea they had a better view of that than i did what i seen was i was just really close you know to see it from that perspective, you know. Well, but you got a very unique experience out of this, man. And I want to come back to the binary because I know people are out there going, so what the binary mean? But uh, if you don't mind, just tell us why it, it took you a minute to get back to that. far as what? The, oh, uh, the, the binary code. Uh, so just tell okay. us. What, yeah. Once I, once I took my hand off that, you know, and everything went back, sort of went back north. I guess normal. You want yeah. to say normal for the situation. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I hate this. These are the things I, I there's, I, I'm, I need help with words. <laughs> I don't, I know what, that's why it took so long to write the book. I mean, even the chapter of this, of the encounter, it wasn't because I'm trying to be creative. It took me like eight or nine rewrites and months to write one chapter. It's just because I wanted to make sure it was descriptive enough. And what was actually going on, and what, what I was seeing, and it made it very hard to the write. I, I mean, I'm like, I need a word for this. I need it. This is what I'm trying to convey. Uh, this, and that's, I did have help that way, you know, with 
the co-author and stuff like that. Well, also you're tackling uh, the attempt to be articulate in something unarticulatable. Like it's very challenging to put that into words, especially the flash, the what you felt. I mean, all of these things. And there's so many things that happen that it's it's understandable, man. Yeah, you're you're good, dude. And you did a wonderful job. Well, I th- I don't know. I look back in hindsight, I could have done things differently. You know? Ah, it's for everybody, you man. Know, no worry about it. I mean, one one is like I. I, I made a mistake by thinking it was go, it wasn't going to go anywhere. Uh, that that influenced a lot. <laughs> it yeah. changes your changes your whole mode of operating. You know what I mean? So it makes sense. Uh, yeah. So anyway, you, you wrote the binary down in your notebook, and then what? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't do it there. Uh, no, I was just, there's just too much going on. Anyway, get away from the craft. I'll make this really short with some bre- using brevity on this. Uh, got away from the craft. Uh, I seen the lights powering up. That's what I call it, powering up, because there's a guy got moving again. Okay, and I'm thinking, I must have activated something. Holy shit. I'm like that. <laughs> I must have activated something. I'm getting also not starting to get reactive again with this lighting. So I got back away from about 10 feet and I got down and I was almost trying to dig a hole in the ground because I wanted to get down as far as I could. I thought there, I, I activated it and it might explode. Uh, there, there's just no way I, I could get away from it far enough. And what it did is when it powered up, it started to brighten up again. I uh, lost the whole craft in there. I mean, that was the silhouette of that was gone in this bright white light. And as it moved up, and this is what I cannot understand this today either. Uh, the, like those trees I mentioned earlier were from, what, five or six feet apart. Uh, the craft, but by my own testimony, or at least nine feet, right, uh, moved back through those trees. <laughs> and then slowly went up to the canopy of the forest, made a slight turn, and was gone a blink of an eye. Okay, complete darkness out there now. Okay, and I hear Burroughs runs up to me. So he's all right. That's my first thought. He's all right. Okay. Uh, he says, do you see that? Do you see that? And he goes, look, over there. I'm going what like what the hell i mean over where i mean there ain't no there ain't no it's gone and uh this is what i'm thinking and he takes off uh heading into the forest what the hell? our team concept is blowing on yeah. well he's just he's <laughs> not solidarity he's, yeah like he's not in the military <laughs> or something he's just uh, i don't know what he is i'm not he was young he was young and stupid i guess uh, i don't know or just let his emotions run over i don't know what happened You'd have to ask him that. That's fair. Um, uh, so I chased him because I can't lose him. <laughs> Especially after what you've just been through. You're like, I don't want to be alone. Let's go. You know, first of all, I don't know what he's seeing there. It's just too dark. There's nothing to see. So like I said, the the forest looked different back then. So we only, uh, I only went another maybe 30 or 40 feet into the forest and went, ran to a first fence uh, barbed wire and then there was a second right behind it and that was barbed wire and then there was a farmer's field well he he's a lot taller than me i think he's like six five he hopped those i had i hopped them but it was sort of 
bad. It wasn't as good as, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got over him. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm chasing after him across this farmer's field. And like I said, it was like 32 degrees of temperature. So there was, you know, water in the field, you know, in between the rows that had been furrows. And you know, with thin ice on them and stuff like that. So I fell down a few times. I got soaked. And so I'm still chasing them. I get past the farmer's houses. I get to a road. And thank God, he stops. <laughs> so I catch up with him. I says, what the hell are you? I, I'm using good words here. That's what right. the hell are you doing? Yeah. Are you chasing? He says, I'm chasing a crap. And then he points over in the opposite direction. And I said, where is it? And he says, over there. And I said, where? And I'm looking over here. And I says, okay, point to it and let me look down your arm. Okay. Okay. I mean, it says, stay calm, you know. And I looked down his arm and he's pointing off to the lighthouse. That's how it went into the statement about the lighthouse. I said, that's, that's the lighthouse. Oh. And we didn't even get that done. Said, I look over to the right, and there's that craft over the Cape Green Forest area. Of, it's just sitting, just sitting there. I thought it was gone. And then it starts moving off very slowly out toward the North Sea. And it's only going slowly 200, 300 miles an hour. Okay. Yeah, just at a brisk pace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Leisurely that's stroll. slow. It's not, it's not at no what i see see i it wasn't like it just i'm guessing it wasn't a, a blink of an eye it just disappeared it's just that uh, it was so fast when it left and that's the other thing when it left there was no air disturbance there was no sound and and there would have had to have been at that speed a sonic boom there wasn't that. Yeah, from our aircraft, yeah. And there's different theories on why they do that or why the why there's a lack of a sonic boom, which is very, very interesting. Okay. And yeah, I know, but that, these are all things that <clears throat> at the time, you know, run through my head. You observe this properly. I mean, that's the thing, is you have to note this kind of thing. And they there should have been sonic booms, there should have been wind disturbances. There, well it had to be air displacement. I mean, um, how does that lift up and how does it move and how in the hell did it move through those trees? Why would it do that? Well, maybe if it, if you start looking back in retrospect after four years, you say, well, maybe because there's a, it can manipulate space, time, da, 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 you know, lots of things. I mean, there's all kinds of working theories you can throw into it that, that you know, that people have and, uh, yeah. So I'm grateful that you pointed that, out the lighthouse. That's the instant. That's the incident. Oh, yeah. And for some, and Burroughs put that in a statement. I don't know why he put that in a statement because I, I don't know because he, I don't know. You didn't see, uh, I guess, what, he, what I seen. Or, I mean, he told Hall on, you know, when we were at the base commander's office, uh, deputy base. Yeah, he says, yeah, I see a triangle craft. He drew a picture of one. You know, he did that stuff, but it's like, oh, man, he's missing a lot of shit, you know. <laughs> why? From his observation. Well, it's it's interesting, but I'm yeah. I like but looking looking back now, you know, you start looking and think, well, that's why one of the theories of the time distortion come in at is maybe for him, maybe everything was instantaneous, maybe nothing, no half hour looking around <laughs> the craft and stuff happened. You know? Okay, so th this is it. I I have two things before we move on to your binary that I'm very curious about. So how long were you? Did you experience being in the craft, in the area of the craft and interacting with it? 
Uh, I would say about, uh, oh, it had to be a half hour. Okay. And did they um, notice the same amount of time go by as well? Um, no, because his observation, all he talked about is uh, the craft itself. He didn't say me walking around there or nothing like that. I mean, he, he missed all that. That's why I said it must be instant for him. But the reason we're <clears throat> I'm concerned about time is when I got back into uh, CSC, you know, turn my weapon in and all this stuff and get debriefed, uh, my watch was a half hour off. That's okay. it. He, yes. he, he didn't have a watch. Okay. See. I wish he did. I had one that was a half hour off. I'm saying, well, mine's half hour off here. What's the, what's the deal here? But it was a half hour ahead? My, my watch? Yeah. No. Uh, it was a half hour, I think, behind. So you had missing time, but you were conscious during the missing time, which is crazy. I thought it was the other way around, to where you're you had well, thirty might, extra might minutes. Been, you know what? I can't really remember uh, now. I don't know. That's why I'm guessing. I can't remember if it was before. Probably or not after. a detail you really thought about. Um, it's but it's uh, interesting. No, but I'm sure I wrote this down in the Enigma because I had my journals. Like I kept journals in the Air Force for every day I was in, so I had that stuff I used to write, help write the book. You know. Um, I'm sure that's written in there. Uh, I, I don't know 100% because I'll tell you what, after nine or ten, you know, uh, uh, manuscript draft drafts, <laughs> yeah, you do. I'm not sure if it would all. Sometimes I think, oh, that's in a book. Oh, no, that was like a manuscript draft number three. I, we left that out because the book was too long. Or, right. Yeah, we had to cut it down to 703 pages. Yeah, like what do you cut? I mean, yeah. I mean, Gary and I, if we did it, the way we wanted to, we probably had a 1500 page book. I mean, uh, that's why we're going to write, that's, part one. that's why we're going to write additional books. Yeah, uh, it's called book not one. about the incident. Well, but well, book one is definitive about the incident, Yeah, but about the findings with the binary and all that stuff, that is going to be in book two. Now we're talking. So let's get to that. So uh, I'm just going to fast track you uh, just a little bit on this, um, just for time's sake, man. But you are amazing. I'm, you know, I'm just every... trying to avoid it. You notice this is subconsciously avoiding it. And I I, I do that every once in a while. I cut, just caught myself. Thanks. Uh, about the binary. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I yeah. do that. Okay. I do that. I know him again, and other people have pointed it out. I got to try to catch myself enough to do that. See, I, I'll, I'll, I'll start changing subject and talk about different things rather than talk about it. No, no, no. I'm, I'm the reason that the time is off. I, I just have so many questions for you. I just want to kind of stop you and keep going and keep going. But I, for everybody, the book will be linked in the show notes. Of course, please take a look at this and any other thing, uh, way that you've been interviewed. This is probably the best one. We're getting the most out of you right here, which is wonderful. I'm hearing you talk about things you haven't before, and that's, that's awesome. Um, so I, I wanted to ask, so you had started getting the, the reports that I'd heard you say was that you started getting kind of headaches or intenseness. And so you went down and just wrote this down. So what led you to jot down the binary in the first? So I, 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 you know, I, I, I'm I'm up all day. Okay. I can't sleep. I mean, the, I, I write all of it off and I'm sure it was, is because of the trauma, you know, of what happened. And so I'm up all day and man, I mean, it's like getting 11 o'clock at night on that Saturday. I mean, I'm, after the incident and I was like, man, I got to try to get some sleep, you know? So I, I lay down in bed and when I shut my eyes and minds, this is the mind's eye stuff. And all of a sudden I start seeing these ones and zeros, zero, 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 one, 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 zero, one. That's what the hell is that? 
Oh no! I said this is just great. I said I'm gonna. Ha- I said I'm losing my mind. I'm traumatized. I'm gonna have to end up going into the base hospital. How in the hell am I gonna explain this? I mean, where do I start? I'll end up getting, you know, any of my career, you know, uh, off the weapons list, start separation pay. All that went through my head. I'm not gonna be able to beat this because I'm gonna have to go and get some kind of medical or something wrong. So I get up, and I'm not going to sleep anyway, so I make a pot of coffee like at midnight. And I sit down in my living room, and I say, well, I wonder if all this happened exactly like this. Maybe maybe I'm traumatized. I pull out my notebook off the, the, the counter I had it on, and I'm looking through it mainly at my notes. I'm looking at my notes. Oh, yeah, 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 I'll go through it. And, you know, I think I can write those ones and zeros down. So I get a pen, and of course, you know, I got all these pages in the back of notebooks. So I flip back there. That's the only paper I had anyway. And so I close my eyes and I go one zero 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 one 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 zero one. Zero. And I start writing them down. And the thing was, I didn't, I didn't want to stop because it felt good. It felt great. I felt better. And I said, oh, that's nice because I'm, you know, I don't want to go into the base hospital and have to talk about this stuff. I mean, this crazy stuff. So, and I get to one point where my pen, you know, clogs up. <laughs> so I'm panicking, looking for another pen, you know, trying to find one that works in the, in the drawer, you know. And I find another one. And so, I, and that's, this is important because I, I would have to, later on find out that I had to start where I left off mentally. I don't know how in the hell it can happen. It's impossible, I would think. And um, so I finished out writing out, and I get after about 16 pages and writing them down in this notebook, all of a sudden, I can't see those ones and zeros anymore. I stopped. That's it. And I went, okay, you feel good, Jim. Wow, you might just dodge the bullet. Let's see how you feel tomorrow morning. I wonder if I can go to sleep. I'm thinking all that stuff. And despite the pot of coffee, I go to bed and I sleep until like 10 or something the next morning or 11. I mean, I sleep a lot, a long time. I get up, I feel great. I went, oh my God, you dodged a bullet here. You're going to be all right. Okay, career's intact. Um, do I tell anybody about that? Uh uh-uh, uh, I'm not gonna tell anybody about that. <laughs> There's just no way I'm gonna tell anybody about me having a mental breakdown after the incident, you know? That's what it was, I thought at the time. So, uh Pack Rat, I keep everything so you know, like the notebook gets put away, uh, you know, whatever. Um thirty years later, we're doing a film shoot out in California for Ancient Aliens. Uh, let's see, it's uh, Prometheus Pictures. They're the ones that were doing Ancient Aliens. And then Kim Sharon was the producer. And so back at that time, they didn't have, a, oh, when we did that, they didn't have, they had film. They didn't have a digital. That was it. So I'm out there with Burroughs and Lindemann Hauser and, uh, I'm do I'm I'm being interviewed, and they have to change film. <laughs> I said okay. So 
well, I'm talking to Bruce and he's talking to me, you know, he, he's talking to me while I'm trying to think of what I'm going to, you know, say, you know, and he says, well, he asked me about date. I said, well, I think I have that in the notebook. So I'm flicking through the notebook and I flick it too far back and the ones and the zeros are there. Well, once that happens, I mean, it was like Linda Bolton Howe, like a hungry dog seeing red meat. Okay, this is the way she acted. Says, that's binary code. I went, what? I says, oh, that's binary code, ones and zeros. I didn't know. I'm a criminal justice major, you know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Exactly. And I said, oh, really? And then they were like relentless. Burles and then about when when you get that when you write that I said oh I wrote that down you know, I figured what the hell I said tell them I mean I'm out of this service I got my retirement what the hell so I said oh I said this is after the incident I said at home I said I wrote all this down I said I couldn't sleep and they go oh my god oh that, that's a smoking gun I said no it's probably gibberish I said I was losing my you know I think I was crazy you know losing my mind trauma and so they were relentless about it so i mean they she and burles called me everyone went back to illinois they must have called me twice a day okay they wanted to do something so i get a call from kim sharon though she says okay it probably is gibberish okay it probably doesn't meanless that's what she said i said okay I said, that's what I'm thinking. And I said, because I wasn't in a good state of mind. And she says, I'll tell you what, uh, can you go ahead and um, scan, you know, like a few pages and send it to us? And we'll have someone look at it. I said, okay, this is like between you and me. And she goes, yeah, no problem. <laughs> so that's what I did. I sent her like five pages. And uh, three days later, and besides, you got to remember, I'm getting badgered by Hall and Burles. Oh yeah, yeah. I would have if if I were there, I would have been in the third on the list. Yeah, absolutely. It's oh, terrible. And uh, <laughs> no, it was. It was just horrible. I wouldn't answer the phone. It got to the point. I oh, that's it. not good. I wouldn't have been like that. No, but, yeah. Oh, I know. No, I seen the number. Oh, yeah, They're eager, man. This is the first time that's happened. So uh, it's a very interesting thing. Plus, it's translatable. Like you, you were given a message. Uh, yeah. Well, so I get a call from Kim, and our technology was as great back then you know with uh, like skype and zoom and all that so anyway we set up a skype call and i think it was skype i don't know but i yeah because i got she was on the phone with me and then she i went through on the screen and uh, a guy named nick sisk i think went and deciphered she's jim and there's actually a message there. i said there's no fucking way there can be a message there that's what i said quote unquote and she says, no, there is. I said, no way. There, it can't because I know it, how it happened. You know, I was sitting there losing my sanity. <clears throat> At least so I thought. And uh, she started to go through it. You know, it started out with and it listed uh, you know, seven coordinates. Uh, the first coordinate and the last coordinates were the same one. Okay. Uh, which they like to sensationalize is called a high Brazil coordinate. Okay. Oh yes. That is yeah. so interesting, which is an ancient Island. It's not even around anymore. Not even around, <laughs> but it is sitting 60 feet down. They got yeah, it satellite used to be. image. Yeah. Well, they got imagery of that where they can see it under the coordinate sites. They can see the Island there. 
I want to say it was like Scotland's uh, or Druids Atlantis. Isn't that what they called it? Ireland. Yeah, it was Ireland. Ireland. Yes, so, that's right. They're yeah, Atlantis. It's fascinating. That. Very cool. So anyone, when she told me that, uh, fine, okay. Um, and I says, okay, now I don't trust Prometheus. Who <laughs> I have no reason not to trust him. I don't trust him. I don't believe it. Okay. <clears throat> and also, um, so I said, okay, I'm going to, so I call up Linda and I said, Linda, you want you want five pages that you want to try to get deciphered? <laughs> she was like salivating over. I don't know. She goes, okay. So I said, yeah, I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead and send them to you. And I did. And um, about th- oh three three days later, four days later, she told me she's going to send them to some professor down in Australia to decipher one in North Carolina. Uh, then she's going to have someone there in uh, Arizona decipher it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, about three or four days later, I get a call, and she is giddy. She says, there's a message in there. I said, well, okay, tell me what it is. You know, at that point, you're like, oh, I already had my big shock there with Prometheus. And she's, she went through it, and I said, oh, okay. She says, well, aren't you excited? Oh, so, well, that's exactly uh, what Prometheus came up with. I said, I was just double checking. And she got pissed. Oh, that you gave it she to says, them Prometheus? and not her? Yeah. She says, you gave it to them, you gave it to them first? Says, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't trust her. She's a ufologist, a UFO, uh, you know, opportunist and entertainer. You know what I mean? Uh, I Some didn't believe folks her. in the game are like that. Yeah. 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 So I didn't, you know, I'm not going to give something that crazy to uh, someone that's in the game to make money off of it. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the point is the binary code would never have been discovered. If it wasn't for those two. I love this story. I love this part of the story. You just put it it's under your the, bed. It's in the book. Like, it's in the book. For like 30 years, uh, you just sat on it and just didn't throw yeah, it away. It, it would never got out. Uh, so there was, uh, it came, it came out. And then uh, we went and did another show with ancient aliens. And they were going to do it overseas, which I wanted to see what I wanted. I wanted to see if I could get total recall, you know, it would take witnesses back to the crime scene. Okay. And if Burroughs was with me, we might, I might be able to remember more or something, you know, and sure enough, that was the case, but, um, uh, they were like persistent that we had to make this public. And I said, I don't know if I want to do that. Uh, and they said, Oh no, no, we got to. So constant badgering and I'm not pulling no punches. It's nothing personal with them, but they're just badgering. Uh, at least I thought that way. And, um, I finally gave in. I said, okay, I guess so. I guess maybe, maybe the fact that I got this information and it does actually say something, maybe that means it needs to be public. I guess I don't know, and so they did a show, and it was released released public. I got all kinds of shit over that, uh, everything from the new Billy Myers stuff to making shit up. I was like, "What the hell?" I said, "Oh, so no one believes it." I said, "My God, that's fine, but don't don't sit there and call me a liar and attack me. That's not you know, there's no reason for that. Just say you don't believe it." 
Well, and you've offered this up for forensic analysis. You've offered for people to look at it and date the ink and all of that. Nobody's yeah. taking you the up The notebook. On it. Oh, this, I got a good story about that one, too, because we did that initially. And um, I guess it's Bob oh, Robert Wood. It's the guy who did it. Okay. He's, he's in L.A. and he does uh, documents anyway. Okay. That's what he does. But he's also tied into ufology somehow. <clears throat> anyway, uh, Dr. Wood... Um, so that yeah, everything uh, in there happened, or the notebook was written in in 1980, the ink and all this stuff. So, you know, and of course, even Burroughs had his doubts about that, even though he's told that by him. <laughs> you know, he didn't. He you know, you're told. I said, okay, okay, whatever. I said, well, that's that's the case. I said, he said, well, you need to, because he asked me, so you need to get authentic. I said, no problem. I don't have a problem doing that. You know, and uh, but you know. He didn't like the answer. I think he was looking for an answer that wasn't true or something. I don't know. Um, anyway, so there's a National UFO Symposium, 50th anniversary in, in uh, Irving, California. Uh, I think it was 2019 or it could have been 2018. I can't remember now. Uh, I think 2019. Okay, it's before the uh, all that mess thing there um well i love it i know what you're talking about we all do it was uh before you had to take your shoes off uh, before you got on planes yeah i get it <laughs> anyway the good uh, old days yeah and so yeah yeah and uh, so i'm out there and guess who's on the panel on one of these panels dr wood yo hey how you doing you know robert wood and i said yeah, it's Jim Penn. Oh, he said, I know who you are. And I said, oh, let's, let's talk about that notebook. Oh, yeah, he said, I thank you. And he says, yeah, he says, it, it's written you know, within, you know, I can only say within, you know, the few months of the summer night. I can't be exact. He says, we can't, you know, not yet. He says, someday you will. I said, okay. He said, so we talked about it. So he went into more detail, which is going to be in the um, uh, upcoming uh, second edition. We're going to do a update. Uh, all the new witnesses and information that came out. Oh, cool! Yeah, so if you got you got it on, uh, and I really do think you should try to get it on uh, Kindle because that's an automatic update for you. You automatically get the update. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, Robert uh, told me more about it. He says, uh, he said, oh no, he says uh, the the ink's the right type. He went through all kinds of stuff on it. I said, well, I said. So you, you're saying you're 100% sure? He says, I'm 99.9% sure. He says, I'm never 100% sure about nothing. Yeah. That's <laughs> I said, a good, okay. So good I went, position. Oh, 99%. I'll take that. And, and he says, why are you asking anyway? He says, oh, and the nose is authentic. I says, yeah, but there's people out there, that, you know, don't think so. They, I don't know. I think I fabricate a book or something. I don't know. There's well, people you've, out there like you've that. gotten you've gotten not only your experience that you had with this, which was obviously traumatic, but also you've got tons of scrutiny. And it does have to do with uh, Burroughs' misidentification of the lighthouse, which was later put in the reporter. That's how he reported well, it. Well, the fact that he's a loose cannon. He's just a loose cannon. I mean, he's he'll he'll throw anything at a wall, hoping it sticks. Well, unfor- like unfortunately, like you, you have a lot of trepidation for this, but a, a lot of people just jump out to discredit you besides maybe treating you like a human being. Like, hey, you went through something. You saw something very, very interesting. Well, you know, one of the things is, is I have an outstanding Air Force career. Uh, you do. Perfect, yeah. perfect performance reports, generals and everything else. I don't want to get into all that. I mean, I, it's, it's 
it's it's it's it's a very good career. I've never had a person I work for ever say a bad thing about me, uh, ever, um, until recently. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, and um, so you know, you say what you want, say you don't believe something, or say something and you think it's a hoax or whatever you want. You can say all that. I don't, I'm okay. I'm okay with you. Uh, being a, um, a skeptic, I mean, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but whatever you do, don't call me a liar. Yeah. Or don't attack me personally. You got to be kidding me. My kids, they said, they said, oh my God, we should tell them about the rules about lying in the house. You know, about the growing up. You know, they says, and the truth is, I never penalized my kids ever. You know. <laughs> how bad it was as long as they told me the truth and believe me that's hard to do with your kids if they tell you the truth you don't penalize them okay oh, that should that's be a right? freebie yeah it's a freebie you know it's wrong but it's a freebie yeah that's why you... you've got all girls too right i got three girls that is <laughs> a handful dude yeah uh, uh so i i want to come back to the um binary real quick because do you mind if i uh, go ahead and tell the audience what it said or what it was decoded no, to no, read? Go, you know, i tell you me more accurate because you probably have it in front of you i do uh it's called uh so once this was binary was decoded not only were there several and you said seven well six total one was repeated um coordinates to sacred sites around the world so one like you said was high brazil uh the other was of course uh the temple at Apollo, uh, the um, pyramids at Giza, uh, and then also uh, Nazca, Nazca line. So these are all famous things in um, ufology and strangeness. Pretty much all of them have pyramids. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I didn't even make that connection, but good call. That's that's a damn good call. The one in China does too. The one in China has uh, a pyramid. Well, there are pyramids all over the damn place, like Bosnia, um, Antarctica, whatever the hell that is. There's a good reason why they're, they're building pyramids, you know, so... Because they're permanent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, wind sharing is not an issue. Really, erosion doesn't really take that long of a toll. I think the biggest issue they had down there with the Mayan pyramids was just jungle growing over it and having to cut it back away. That was it. Uh, as far as degradation goes, you're right. And they can survive earthquakes. It's just, it's interesting and good point. So when when this was decoded, besides the sacred sites, it read, exploration of humanity continues for planetary advance. And then it goes on to read, eyes of your eyes and then origin year 8100 now uh let's let's break that down just a little bit so um whenever you talk about exploration of humanity continues for planetary advance now it didn't say continuous continuous yes sir my apologies uh it didn't say um for uh traveling it just said planetary humanity so it didn't say anything about how to get here uh what that looks like that's an interesting part perhaps eyes of your eyes is very interesting as well uh what do you think that part of it means eyes of your eyes have you thought about i don't that? believe very, yeah i don't believe i have thought about that i don't believe very not everybody can see uh, yeah. Okay. I love that one. Um, how I read it just simply based on the year 8100 and the fact that you and I have already talked about, we haven't brought it up here yet, but time travel uh, is one thing that I'd like to talk to you about next. But this is one Inter, clue. Interdimensional travel. A, interdimensional yes. or time travel. I love this. Uh, intertempestrials, as um, Dr. Michael P. Masters calls them. That's a good it. word. You know, it might come up a really good word for that. That is a good word. It's great, right? That's Michael <laughs> P. Masters. Yeah, he's awesome. He And you've read the book. Um, so... 
Uh, this is one thing that was interesting to me. So eyes of your eyes. Whenever I got to that part of it, uh, exploration of humanity, continuous for planetary advance. Okay, all of these things have to do with either interdimensional or time travel, if you really think about them. So, of course, they would want to explore their ancient past of humanity. Now, rather they're human or not, which I want to get to you with, but also for planetary advance, they came back in time, perhaps, or jumped in a dimension and now have entered this time from a different one, maybe the origin year of 8100, but also eyes of your eyes. This is the part where I was like, oh, well, that's them telling us that they're us from the future. They have our eyes. They're the same species, but not necessarily. Like they're a tweaked... Oh. That, you know what? That, that could be true. I don't know. That's what I thought That's, of. I never, I never, I never seen that. I never, I know, I didn't, I never thought of that. Okay. Well, and the way, whenever we bring up uh, interdimensional or time travel, we'll just say time travel uh, for, I'll, I'll enter to play that, but we, you and I know that there's probably something else going on here, but all three of those things, and it's interesting to the, um, coordinates because the coordinates could be either energetic or that those things actually lasted until the year 8100 which would be pretty damn cool if the pyramids of giza last that long uh that's who's to eight, say eight millennium yeah that's a lot uh, who's to say or um you know uh, the the uh the interdimensional or time travel part of it is what's so damn fascinating to me and i know that you're a big fan of this as well i have heard you report in interviews that it's not extraterrestrial you just have this feeling about it and i never did i, ne I never did have a, a feeling that it was uh, uh extraterrestrial i never used the word ufos unless i was told to by film companies but i know even at the time i mean i purposely did not call it in my reports a ufo i called it a craft of unknown origin i mean that's exactly what it is. That's a more descript answer because it was identified. It was a craft, but you didn't know what or where it was from. So this is perfect. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, and I've talked about like why they fly because I've heard that like, well, why isn't it just a time machine like the movie The Time Machine? Well, if you think about it, of course it would fly. Like, why the hell wouldn't you want it to do that? The other reason would be that, you know, geologically the earth is different and it changes over time and especially over times in which you'd be time traveling. So you'd want to jump to a point where there was nothing else around or you weren't going to get stuck inside a mountain or something like that. So that's that's maybe why they fly. Okay. What's really important is this research that Gary, my co-author, had done. Uh, is that he found a code within the code, see? And that is, that's what's part of It's going to be in this book. Uh, the, uh, what do they call it every 26,000 years? Uh, what do they the call that? The procession of the equinoxes. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But that ties, it's tied in right to the math, to the numbers. Exactly with that okay the 8100 the whole works gary's gonna, he's gonna lay all this out plus one of the things that's in the code is a uh, uh is a uh fine structure content you ever hear that if this fsc this fine structure content usually is in you know uh, you know stuff in like galaxies and space and other phenomena the fine like structure that. constant Yes. Okay, yes, yes. And uh, anyway, this the in within the code uh, there's a fine structure content. That that oops, sorry. That's okay. Oh, that means uh, <laughs> I got my hands going. <laughs> this is awesome. That 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 means that uh, Gary determined that uh, on the December 26, 1980, the code when it was written that this fine structure constant is in there. 
and he goes into detail about it uh, and tells how and the math behind it and makes sure that, you know, he proves it, okay? And, but the fine structure constant means that that code, especially the one for Giza, goes over 13 different um, decimals, okay? That's how finite it is, okay? So the chances of it ever being wrong are trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions to one. I mean, it's just impossible. And so this all reinforces the code, and it shows the bigger picture of the code. As a matter of fact, the Reynolds from Forest is, is not about you or me or anybody else. It's about the code. Mm. I mean, that's for whatever the purpose and reason it was for the contact, it was about the code. And there's just no doubt in my mind that we're going to, uh, he's going to, well, a matter of fact, he cannot write one book about it, an additional book. He has two books envisioned. <laughs> he's with he's writing. I mean, he goes, I think he goes back and forth between the two books. Uh, but you got to talk to him about that. And, uh, but uh, yeah, his research has been intense. And what I, what I like is the fact that uh, you, the math don't lie. The math does not lie. Uh, uh, you're more welcome to it. Uh, uh, skeptics have left it alone because they eventually try to do something with it. And he says, okay, here's why I came up with it. Uh, Prove differently. And they can't. It's just like that. But that just shows you the, that if the, the Reynolds and Forrest uh, um, uh, message, binary message wasn't enough to find out there's a code within a code. And the thing is, um, the information that for him to extract all this, and he can correct me, I could be a little bit wrong about stuff, but uh, like Google Earth, the, the program for it didn't exist like till 2014 or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, and it, this thing measures stuff down to, to a, on a global scale to an inch. Okay. With the, with the binary code. It's to an inch. You, <laughs> inconceivable, you know? Uh, but it, that code was only good under Google Earth for that two-year period, okay? Then, they, of course, Google changed it again. And uh, it's amazing. So there was, a t there was a perishable time frame for it to be uh, discovered, I guess. So, Jeez. I, I know it's incredible. It's in, the whole damn thing is incredible, and there are just so many fascinating points to this story. It's uh, this account, um, what you've encountered, and even uh, Connecticut professor, uh, what is it, Ron Mallet, Ron Mallet. Uh, you are in communication with him as well, and even he says that he's a theoretical physicist, guys. Uh, this is also how he even speculates that this is completely theoretically possible. That if you were to send a message back from the future, you do it in binary code. Yeah, that's, you know, and I tell you what, uh, that clip I showed you from uh, where I think it was taken up a storage to Connecticut, uh, that was on an anti-aliens show, okay, on one that I was in, okay, and I get a call, no, I wasn't in that one, I wasn't in one of the previous one, but we, the binary just came out, and like six months later, ancient alien does another show, and they got Dr. Mel on it, and, um, so Kim Sharon calls me up from LA. She says, "Hey, you got to go out and see this clip." She says, uh, "She says you're gonna, you're gonna find it fascinating on a separate, um, a separate, totally different show, and a viewpoint from Dr. Mellet on his theory 
on time travel. I said, how long is that? And she goes, oh, it's only like three minutes. She says the clip. So she sends it to me. I went, oh. So that would be the logical way for them to communicate from the future. Wow. Yeah, which is fascinating, which again lends more to this idea that it's, you know, intertempestrials. Now, I, I, I want to um, ask you a couple of questions here. Um, okay, so l- let, me, let me ask you this. I, I had a listener submit a question um, from a good friend of mine, Caitlin Romaine, who uh, I'll go ahead and send her a shout out there. Uh, she wanted to know uh, how this event sh- changed your perspective on your identity. Oh, my God. Uh, well, it changed completely the way I viewed everything, uh, for sure. Uh, before that night entering the forest, I didn't believe in any of this hooey. UFOs, uh, extraterrestrials, uh, anything like that, okay? It's all science fiction, okay? Uh, but I left that forest completely 180 degree thinking something different okay because i experienced it i know know what happened and uh, originally uh we were ensured that our names would ever get out okay uh in the reports and you you know career-wise you can see why we were looking at at least i was okay i don't know about the other people uh so that happened but like i said when we were talking about this paper that came out in 1983 i was still in england i was still stationed in Bellwaters. so i was pissed when i seen that <laughs> so i always started reading it. i went oh i started reading you know what i was reading in there the cover story i says oh they're published the cover story this is no big deal <laughs> that's the cover story they came up with. That's the one that was going around all the pubs and that. And I explained that in the book, how that came about and by who and who was tasked with it and who ordered it and all that stuff. It's in the Enigma book. And um, anyway, that's what this public release was. And so I was like, oh, okay. But it did cause problems because, uh, you know, I was told to keep it treated as top secret which I always did until I found out it never happened, you know? So I got, a, I got an official thing from the Air Force and never happened. So nothing's classified. It's like, oh, cool. Because retired. my memory said something else, but thank you for clarifying that it never yeah, happened. When yeah. I retired, uh, our, our, our ND8, uh, non-disclosure agreement, you know, you know, secrets and targeting times and all that stuff. Uh, I says to the guy that was all process of me, I says, there's nothing on there about bellwaters. He says, well, I don't know about it. I said, well, ask him if a thing in you know, December 26, 1980, Bellwater is anything classified. And he did. And like two, I'm all processing retiring from the Air Force. And about two days later, because Halt told me to do this, okay? He says, challenge it. That's what he did. And so I challenged it. And he says, I, I get a call from the sergeant. He says, come up and finish the whole process. And we got a reply for the NDA. And I said, okay. So I get up there. And I said, okay, what did they say? And... Um, he says something really strange. He says, uh, he says, nothing classified happened on that day, so therefore nothing is classified. Perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. And I says, I says, let me have a copy of that. Okay. He says, sure. So at that point in time, nothing classified. You know, I don't know why they went 
uh, plausible deniability or whatever. I, what they should have just said is, is uh, no, the incident is classified. That's all I have to say. And that's all they'd have to say. And I, I think, though, that, the, you know, I mean, people want this stuff out. I think that there's a controlled opposition for this and you are not that, uh, that there are ways of getting this information out. And I think that it's drip fed to the public um, in this way. And I think that's what disclosure is all about now. And we can go crazy on that. But uh, it, it well, feels... it's about control. It is about control. And that's that's the... I mean, that's why it would have been just so much more easy just to suppress all of it. And that's what they did for everything. I mean, pretty much, you know, not a lot of military people can come out and talk about this. Or they've been telling you exactly what they want you to know, which what I, what I think has been happening. Like with the whole Roswell incident and all of that, it started way back then. Yeah, they, uh, well, you know what, uh, what they got good at, what they got very good at is uh, better on the containment. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. I mean, good they call. got down to a, to a science, uh, the containment. I mean, they, they're so good at false flags nowadays that they do major operations. I just watch all these people just follow it left and right. I go, wow. <laughs> well, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I wanted to uh, come back to Caitlin's question real quick and just ask, did oh. you have an, an a you answered it perfectly, but I had a follow-up. Uh, did you uh, have a religious affiliation or affinity beforehand, and did it change afterwards? Uh, yeah, well, I was uh, born, raised uh, Catholic. Uh, do, I, do I believe in God? Sure. Okay. Uh, higher being, yes, all that stuff. Uh, did, it, uh, did it conflict? No. Uh, why would... Uh, Human contact conflict with religion. That's fair, and and you know this is the stance that the Catholic Church specifically has taken. And quite a quite a few years back, they started uh, kind of talking about how maybe hell wasn't a thing, and it's not that big a deal. And then also contact from extraterrestrials, which of course now uh, I believe um, NASA has a bunch of people uh, talking about that right now. What that would do to, re to the religious community, and it's one of those things. The Catholic Church, man, they got right out ahead and said, you know what? There's no reason why the Bible doesn't only apply to what goes on here on Earth, and that it doesn't include things that are outside of earth but they're totally possible and we're all still god's children and that that's a very mature i guess approach to take on it but it is interesting that uh, it didn't shake or affect negatively uh, your faith at all or alter it really dramatically that's interesting no uh, no i imagine if i thought for a second that anything was extraterrestrial i imagine that would have been a problem i i would think well, this is what's so interesting, too, is that your mind went straight to not extraterrestrial specifically and then kind of walked through the time travel or intertempestrial or interdimensional. I don't necessarily think time travel and interdimensional are, the, are different and that's or could be viewed differently or expressed differently, which is why I kind of put them in the same category uh, or they're interchangeable. But it is interesting that you immediately just kind of knew this or it had this innate Well, I feeling. actually, you know, that's a very good point, Brandon. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no. That's the communication. I mean, there was so much looking back and there's so much communication being uh, done that I didn't know it was communication. I mean, uh, for example, like what was in that binary message? I wasn't really surprised when I heard it for the first time because I thought it. So I knew about that. I, I, I thought that before. Well, I think it, it's because it was communicated. You know, that, I mean, I used draw that stuff up myself you know um yeah so uh there's 
It's fascinating, dude. I mean, but and it's part of that right, uh, part of the download that you got, you know. And people in the spiritual community talk about these all the time, and it's interesting to hear you also talk about it as a download in some of the interviews that I've seen with you. It's just like, uh, well, was it man? Well, was it man? No, it was too small. Uh, it this this thing was a uh, this was a drone. You know, I didn't use the word drone then, I, but that's before we had them, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, but there was there was no pilot in it. It wasn't manned. And they're like, oh really? Well, how is that? So it was under intelligent control. Halt seen his stuff. It's under intelligent control. I mean, we knew that, but that was before we had the drones and all this. Yeah, stuff. the vernacular it's, to describe it. I mean, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's just uh, well, one of the theories that we have on on. There's a lot of theories. We oh, have. yeah. Um, uh, but you say, well, we can get into it. There's a lot of things about explaining about uh, why people uh, see things they see and that uh, and all kinds of things like that. We talked a little bit about that the other day. Mm-hmm. But uh, another thing is that uh, I'm not sure who came up with the theory. It was my co-author or it was Darren, another uh, research team guy. Um he says, uh, you know, I don't think uh, these grays that are, he says, I don't think that's psychological, like you're saying, like uh, where they can clone it or where they can uh, uh, you know, change the manipulation of, you know, what you're thinking and seeing and that. So I, they might be real. I said, why would they, why would he say that? He says, what happens, he says, you ever stop and think your craft was unmanned? You ever stop and think maybe uh, that the uh, traveling, you know, interdimensional travel coming back is so rough, so harsh that the human body, corporeal humans cannot stand it. They cannot do it because it would kill them. You ever stop and think about that? Maybe they developed uh, hybrids. Or something that would survive this. I don't know. Oh, so is that what you're saying? And I'm like, you know, you know. At first, I thought he was crazy. You know, even bringing it up. Like, you know, what I said I got thinking about. It. I said, you know, well, that could very well explain a lot of people's uh, sightings. You know, of this instead of being a hallucination. You know. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then uh, the grays are an interesting one. Uh, and now we're adding entities to the conversation. So the, the grays are an interesting one because there are some folks that speculate or kind of get the impression that they're more of automatons. They're more like uh, hybrid robots or something like that. That they're and they can they well, could that's then, probably where Darren came up with it too. I don't know. So uh, they could yeah, survive the space the radiation of space travel, and that's the thing, right? That's why we have a planet. Uh, you know, Mars is the only planet occupied by robots, and it's it's ours. You know, allegedly, right? But um, don't get me started on all that. But um, what's interesting, too, about this is perhaps it was, air quotes, manned. You did see a manned craft. It's just maybe the people were this big. And maybe it was a huge craft for them. And they just didn't need to get out. And there's a projection on the inside. We just have no idea. But, yes, a probe sent through time would would make a lot of sense as well, some sort of drone apparatus, because that'd be a great way to go about it. Now, if you're talking just exploration or curiosity or like a task, for instance, that you needed something bipedal to manipulate, then yeah, that's where we probably see these entities. Now, 
Something that I want to finish up on, and we've, we've probably got to cap it here, man. We've already been doing this for two hours. This is great. Uh, I love this, and I could talk to you forever, but I, this will set us up for the next one as well. So um, one thing I wanted to ask you about as well, another good friend of mine who I was talking uh, to, uh, Mira Taylor from Moon and Ruin, so you guys go check her out. I wanted to uh, talk about... There's this incredible theory that she's got that now I've been thinking about since she talked about it. And we're going to have to end it on this one because it's so crazy and out there and awesome. So what if, and this is a big what if, you don't, we're not going to plant your flag on um, holding you to this concept if you either agree or just fancy it, right? Uh, but what if uh, aliens and UFOs and all of that are nothing more than a product of the Earth or our psychosemantic thinking? Uh, Terrence McKenna has talked about this. Valet has talked about this as well. It's more of a psychosemantic thing when you're talking about any craft like that, that you basically come across an event or something that happens in time, perhaps, that your mind physically can't, no one's mind, by the way, can physically wrap their mind around. So it presents itself in a way that's crazy to you anyway. Technologically, it looks like a crazy technology, but really, it's it's a way to stair-step you or whoever is contacted by this or interacted with this uh, into the idea of higher concepts so that perhaps that you could be this. And maybe that's what being abducted is. Mira's theory on that is, is that they're actually being abducted and going within themselves because you're all that's here. This goes very deep and very philosophical and very spiritual. But um, one of the ways uh, that, that this can be viewed as well as perhaps going within yourself because you're all that's here, it's one idea, uh, that they a craft will appear to kind of buffer the ability to do that. And so it, it's a vehicle. You know, we travel in vehicles like this. We can comprehend something like that. We can't conceptualize it because we can't physically create craft like that, allegedly. But let's say that they present themselves in that way because now it's a part of you that is expressing something you needed to change the direction of your life. Like you, this changed you. You've, we've already talked about that. It's opened you up to all sorts of new concepts, even with the trauma associated with it so again it's probably not you on a conscious level creating this stuff but one idea would be that maybe this is a way for the inner world which is all there is if you follow this theory to kind of anthropomorphize out to a craft type of thing that then take you back inside yourself to perform some sort of surgery or some sort of enlightenment or something like that uh, it's a very far out idea, and I know there was a lot in there, but um, what do you think about that? No, that's the first time I heard uh, such a interesting theory. <laughs> Mira's <laughs> awesome, I mean, by the way. Uh, her and I, when we talk on the phone, it's it's crazy. Uh, no, it's very go, interesting, but it sort of ties in with what I already know so far with the CIA analysts and all that stuff that's yes, covered in the book. Yes, uh, it's part of the cloaking uh, device. The, the, that they have as a self-defense stuff so they can go ahead and manipulate uh, your subconscious and uh, you can I sort of tend to agree with that uh, I don't know I don't know who's right <laughs> I mean oh. I tend to agree with I tend to agree with the uh, uh, fact that it's just a, a cloaking device uh, for the craft a defense you know, to if you, you imagine if you can take a person's subconscious, if and this is what one of the things that was described in the Rockford Collegium chapter, uh, at a distance, and that's why they wanted to talk to us because we had contact. Uh, at a distance, uh, you know, if they if they could go ahead and manipulate that whatever you subconsciously believe in, yep, you see, yep. for example, like fairies or little Bigfoot. green men or or anything yeah you know you're gonna do all that stuff and 
you're going to see that. And the reason that the uh, CIA analysts wanted to talk to me at, during that right rivers from uh, Caligma or the Rockford Collegium uh, is that uh, myself was one of the persons, matter of fact, he said the only one that's still alive, which made me feel sort of Yikes. bad. But yeah, I know. <laughs> Out of 50 or something like that, I felt, well, wow, that's really scary. Uh, but I was the only one that actually had contact up there. And he says, you've seen it for what it was. And I says, Oh, he said, that's why. And he went into other things about this. It's in the Colicium chapter. And some of the things he went into, and one of the things he wanted to do, he wanted to run tests, DNA testing and stuff at Stanford and all this other stuff. And he said because he believes their team of eight they have believe that uh, when you have this unrestricted contact with this phenomena, it leaves a signature in your brain yes, yes that they can detect okay and uh he went into a lot of detail about it it's in the book uh but it's also something that we can talk about later i mean dude so so interesting i mean i, I yeah can... so i don't discount I don't discount anybody i i've learned that from the realms <laughs> right. before instance do not discount anything always <laughs> listen always try to process it and take a look at it later on look at it the next day with a cup of coffee and <laughs> yeah because because you start discounting stuff they just uh it's part of the manipulation that the government does right now oh, yeah. i mean they just they make it that way they they actually manipulate it a lot with these false flag things i use that term a lot but they cover so much what's going on and it's been in everyday life years. yeah and people just don't they think it's normal they think it's just life. They think everything's on. Everybody's honest. And um, one of the things that uh, I, I know we gotta go, but about classification system, okay? They 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 can't understand how you have black departments and stuff like that. They just it's beyond them. It's really easy uh, uh, with classified system. Um, uh, our system of classification. Um, you have uh, this is gonna be an awful lengthy. I think. If I get into this, oh, <laughs> man. Because you were Cosmic Clarence. So you you were up there, man. Yeah, I had Top Secret, uh, PSYOP, uh, BI, uh, Cosmic, Atomo, NATO. Um, I mean, that sounds like space stuff, to a Cosmic Atomo. Yeah, hell yeah. Uh, no, but it isn't. It's just that means you had uh, access to nuclear weapons and stuff like that. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, um, we are going to wrap it here, but uh, this is going to set us up for the next conversation because, dude, you you were welcome on any damn time. We have so much more to talk about for sure. Well, um, see see if uh, you know run it, and if anybody's interested in the subject, we'll do another show. You know, uh, we'll do another show. This is for me. Uh, if if other okay, people want to listen to it, cool. Um, but I, I just put it out as a uh, courtesy to everyone else. This is for me, uh, and that's why we get yeah, the- Brandon. I'll tell you what, Brandon, I like it. Uh, uh, the only difference I'll do on the next one is I'll make sure I have a pot of coffee brewing <laughs> because this is a nice conversation. And, uh, yeah, uh, it's not an interview. It's really actually uh, a nice discussion. It I appreciate that. It's a hang, man. And that's that's kind of my style, if you will. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of the question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. I think you and I covered a lot of ground here. This is probably one of the more comprehensive conversations about this. Uh, you, I tell you what. You've asked questions that were never asked before, and I had a lot of questions uh, asked. <laughs> you had I don't know, at least three, uh, for sure, maybe four. 
Yeah. Well, we'll take it. And that's that's pretty much, again, uh, part of the whole damn reason I started this show is to talk to guys like you. You were actually on a list that I had of, a, of quite a few people, but you were in that list of folks that made me want to start this show to reach out to you to ask you questions wow. like that, that I hadn't wow. um, that I hadn't heard you being asked before. That's the whole damn reason for this. So that's why I say it's for me. Uh, this is a very selfish thing that I do. It's just I put it out for everybody else if they want to listen to it. Okay. Too. And people are going to love this because, again, this is wonderful. So, Jim Penniston, I, my friend, dude, I, I can't thank you enough, man, and we have so much more to talk about. All the ways, of course, to find you will be linked down in the show notes, my friend. So, uh, thank you again for your time. I, I can't tell you what this meant to me personally, but also uh, how amazing this was. So, thank you. Well, Brandon, I enjoyed it. I really did. And I can't say that uh, uh, during a lot of interviews and all these other things, uh, this one seemed more like a uh, that we... We're sitting in a living room and just talking about it, and uh, I appreciate that. You were very honest and good, good questions. Thank you. Truly grateful, my friend. Appreciate honestly. it. And it's just uh, all curiosity. The best. Uh, all the best, indeed. We will talk till the next. Till the next time. Man, oh man, what an awesome, awesome, awesome conversation. God, that was easily one of the most comprehensive breakdowns on this topic in particular that I've ever heard. And I'm just grateful to, to be here sitting with Jim. That was awesome. So all the ways to find him, guys, will be linked down in the show notes. Uh, the Rendlesham Enigma is his book. Go definitely check that thing out. Would recommend five stars. And um, go go out there and just check this stuff out. This is a fascinating case. It's one of the most well-documented. If you're over in that area... Uh, go check it out. Uh, Rundlesham Forest has a little mock, uh, kind of like a, uh, I think it's metal, yeah. It's a metal craft that somebody built over there to put over the exact spot, similar to what Jim saw. Uh, and it's uh, really, really interesting. So it's kind of a hierophany, right? It's one of these places from the sky where the gods came and they reached Earth, and uh, we get to experience that. And you kind of get to go feel the magic around there. And it's an interesting, interesting location. So uh, go down and check the show notes for Jim and his book. If you would like to expand your experience with us here on the show, you can do so at expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is where links to all of the socials, Rockfin for premium content, uh, as well as merch, uh, t-shirts and stuff are up there. we got some new shirts up. Make sure you go check that out. Some really cool artists doing some awesome stuff for us. So go check that out for show. And uh, other than that, guys, go go out into this beautiful world. I mean, go check that book out for sure. Make sure you check this case out. Even on your own just research it it's fascinating if you're into ufos at all if you're into anything mysterious this is a really really good one to kind of bake your noodle on you know what i mean kind of rock the old noodle on there so i uh, go out in this beautiful place whatever the hell this thing is and y'all uh, pick up a piece of litter uh, buy somebody in line around you a coffee or a meal something like that uh, open doors smile at folks be nice to every human animal entity lizard person that you come across go out into this beautiful place and y'all just be good to one another. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time.